Christopher Nolan returns to the big screen with a film about the man credited as the father of the atomic bomb. Join us as we discuss the huge cast, multiple timelines, and the heavy themes of Oppenheimer. Welcome everyone to the Collector's Cut. I am Peter and joining me as always is David. You can only get so far with theory. And you may as well call me Fission and David Fusion because this is going to be our discussion about Oppenheimer, the brand new Christopher Nolan film. Of course, we've been doing Christopher Nolan movies because we want this to come out, obviously, you know, as close to release as possible. This is actually slotting in the middle of the season um, yep. and we've got more of his films coming later. But uh, it's interesting that we've done and released both Folly and Memento so far, because those are the two that I'd probably compare this to the most, funnily enough. Uh, so, yeah. we'll, we'll get into all that, of course. We'll start spoiler-free. Uh, obviously, it being historical events, yes, obviously it's not a spoiler to say there was indeed an atomic bomb, and it did indeed drop uh, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But hey, Jesus, man. That, that's just common knowledge history. That's what that is. Uh, all right. But uh, everything else, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a warning before we get to spoilers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about the film, and we'll get into it. Uh, so three hours long, of course, it's about <laughs> the the man, Oppenheimer, who is known as the father of the atomic bomb. Yep. This film follows, obviously, the creation of that and the testing, the Trinity test and all that stuff. Uh, but it's a Christopher Nolan film, so we have some playing with narrative structure uh we we have it's like from the first shot of this movie you oh, just yeah. know they're telling it out of order and it's like all right here we go so you know you maybe have like an inkling of what you might be in for it's a very interesting film actually because i would say because it's a bit of a historical figure that makes me think of dunkirk compared to the rest of his movies but it's actually structured and made more like his other films probably his first two films more than anything it really feels like a culmination of a lot of his different interests and techniques over, mm-hmm. you know, his career so far. And, you know, so it'll be interesting to talk about that stuff and get into it. Uh, yeah. But uh, obviously we have Killian Murphy playing Robert Oppenheimer. And uh, there's a, actually a huge cast list. We'll get into the cast in a minute because there's a lot of names oh, and there's a God. lot of, like, famous faces or known faces who pop up for a scene. So we'll we'll go through a bunch of them in a minute, but... Before we get to that, we should probably get the, the cards on the table a little bit and just get into the the the, the, the raw feelings of it. So, David, mm. how did you feel about Oppenheimer? I watched this last night. It was the only time I had available to carve out three hours of my life and watch <laughs> this movie. And the only thing that I can really say is that I wish I had more time with it because I liked it. I really did like it. I absolutely did. But even now, almost 24 hours after I finished watching it, I'm still processing it. And I'm sure that during our discussion, we'll we'll get through some of the things I'm trying to process. But like this movie was so dense. It had... I've I've identified at least three different central themes that I feel like it's really pushing for the entire time. It's got incredible cast of characters, as we said. It's beautiful to look at. Um, 
even the soundtrack is fantastic as well. I mean, I can't, I've honestly at this point finding, finding it a hard time of thinking of something negative to say. It really was just a amazing experience the whole way through. Yeah, you said it's very dense. Honestly, it's insane that the pacing of this movie, for a movie that's three hours long, the mm-hmm. way it is darting around scenes and timelines. And yeah. this is not a movie that's interested in having like traditional establishing shots before you go into your, your next scene. A lot of the, the the different scenes and the different timelines will sort of lead into each other with dialogue and it'll kind of cut mm-hmm. mid-sentence to like another scene from another part of the timeline. So it's it's this breakneck pace that you're kind of like, holy shit, can I keep up with this for three hours? Because right. it's, 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 it's draining me. I'm drained. That was... Before I went in, the last time that we had a very long movie, um, I I was like, okay, I need to pee. At a certain point in this movie, in the theater, (laughs) I need to stop and pee. So this time I took the initiative of, okay, I'm going to check online and see when people say is the best time if you need to use the restroom. And every single article I went to is, you can't. You gotta stay the whole time. (laughs) There's no point where you can leave this movie. And watching it, I agree. I don't think there really is a good point where you could have dipped out at anywhere in there. Yeah, uh, I mean, I liked it a lot as well. Uh, it's it's definitely feels like an evolution of like all of his tricks and all of his motifs mm. that he uses in his movies. It's, it's doing all that. And it's funny that when we were talking about, and I'm glad that the, uh, the, the following and Memento reviews are already out because I can refer mm. to them a little bit. Is that we were talking about those two? I remember saying, you know, I almost wish that he could do a smaller character piece again in yeah. the way that following was. And what's weird is, as I was watching this, I was like, you know what? This is like huge in scale. It's got a hundred million dollar budget and all these other things. But in a weird way, this is the closest thing to following he's made since following. And it's mm-hmm. it's it's baffling me almost that it feels that way. But it kind of is. It just it happens to be about a character who's so important because he's a real life figure who did all these things. And, like, obviously the themes that that leads to um, about science, about politics, about responsibility and accountability, and all these things, and it's doing all all that while struggling where the empathy of the audience should or shouldn't lie, and how ambiguous some of those elements are, and how much I want you to think about that. Uh, yeah. These are discussions that I'm sure we're going to get into very deep when we're in mm-hmm. the spoiler section. Um, and then on top of that, like... The cast of this, right? So obviously, Kelly and Murphy is Oppenheimer, right? Yes, you got that. I'm not mm-hmm. going to name who everyone plays because it would just it would just double the length of this because there's too many names to bring up. But yep. Emily Blunt's in there. Robert Downey Jr. is in there. He's a pretty prominent figure in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, Jason Clark pops up. You see him early on. I was oh, it's Jason Clark. Yep. Um, Kenneth Branagh's got a scene he's worked with Nolan a couple of times as does Gary Oldman he pops up uh, at one point and I'm like oh I, uh, he's not worked with Nolan since Dark Knight Rises this is a nice little reunion not to reveal who he is but when he popped up in typical Gary Oldman fashion I didn't know it was him it was only when I got home and checked the cast list where I was like oh my god that was Gary Oldman I, I did realize it was him but I, I've seen him in makeup before I guess so I just yeah. kinda, I, I could see it I could see through it but um you've got him and it did this thing in the movie where there's quite a few characters where before it shows their face it kind of builds up to them a little bit so Mm -hmm. it almost worked in both a character level but also like an actor level where i'm like oh who's it going to be there's no way this is just some nobody who's it going to be and sure enough you know casey affleck pops up in a role Mm -hmm. um 
God, who, who am I forgetting? Uh, so I've, I've got it in order uh, of, like, quote-unquote, importance here. We got Matt Damon, obviously. Oh, yeah, I've never mentioned Matt Damon yet. But the one I was thinking of is um, uh, from The Warriors, the Dexter's dad and stuff. Oh, yeah, no, we we saw him on something else as well. James Remar. James Remar, that's the that's one. That's right, yep. Right? Which I was, you know what? He's a great character actor. I love to see him. I'm like, oh, I'm mm-hmm. glad he got to do a Nolan movie. In fact, same with um, uh, David Crumholtz is in this. Oh, okay. Right? And he yeah. he was in the Deuce and he's been in some other things, but I saw someone pointed out online that uh, he was in 10 Things I Hate About You with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Heath Ledger and all three of those <laughs> have all yeah, I've done been in Nolan features. movies. And I just, I don't know. It's just, so it was nice to see him. So. So going through here, uh, Florence Pugh obviously is a major role. Yeah. Uh, we have Josh Hartnett was in this. Remy Malek. Oh, uh, he was a huge. I did not know he was in this. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a big Mr. Robot fan, so that was a bit of a a, a spin for me. Yeah. Uh, Dane DeHaan was a big character. Uh, Jack Quaid played Richard Feynman. And of the course. Only, I just I, the only reason I know that it was Richard Feynman is that every scene that Jack Quaid was in, he was playing bongos, which is a famous thing that. Richard Feynman did at the uh, Manhattan Project, and I just I found that hilarious. Yeah, that's Huey from the Boys. Uh, yep. For everyone keeping track, uh, we have Josh Peck, more least notable than that. A uh, couple other big names in there, but those are like the big ones that have any sort of impact on the plot, really. It's very stacked. Like, there's so many mm-hmm. people who just sort of like there's a face, you know. Just... Oh, Jason Jason Clark, he was another big one. Oh, I mentioned him. Oh, you did. Sorry. Yeah, he, he was. Because you see him quite early on. I was like, oh, it's mm-hmm. Jason Clark. And it's yep. amazing how many of these people that even share screen time with, like, almost anyone else. Like, you know, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll be in a scene with Kelly and Murphy because he's the lead. But mm-hmm. so many of them won't interact with anyone else in the cast. Uh, and that's just, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's so expansive. It's so, I, I think in some ways, particularly him and Downey Jr., it might be like the most, like, Nolan's ever gotten out of an actor in terms of, like, a performance. Yeah. Because uh, I think this is, and this is what making me think of Memento. There's two things that made me think of Memento. One was obviously the fact that there's like part of the movies in black and white, which made me think mm-hmm. of Memento because that has the sort of the, the one part of the timeline in black and white. Yep. So that made me think of that. But even just in the terms of like it being such a strong character study, I feel like Memento out of any of his movies is the most that I would call a character study. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I would say, I mean, obviously we haven't got to it, but Insomnia might that, be that, up there with yeah, it. That, but... that, yeah, that, that's kind of in the ballpark too. But I would mm-hmm. say Memento is the one that definitely gets the most uh, praise yeah. and it's the, it's the prominent one you think of. But yeah, um, no, this this movie, I mean, obviously we haven't, I don't want to spoil anything for our reviews of later movies, but there's something that can be pulled from every single one of his movies. For instance, just, just in terms of the framing device, uh, Dunkirk was the first movie that he did the like naming of the different timelines for the one, two and three for land air and sea. And that comes back in this. You're saying the memento had the black and white that comes back in this. There's something from his entire career, just not, not maybe a main focus, but at least featured in this movie. Yeah. Even prestige with two perspectives. That's kind of there. Um, yeah. And then it was obviously that scene where he put on the uh, Batman mask and, uh, threatened someone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I I kid, of course. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we really like, like went through frame by frame at some point when they're in like 
Los Alamos if there's some kid reading a Batman comic because obviously it oh. was out at that point. It's I'm I'm it would have been fresh. It'd have been new. It'd have been hot yeah, stuff. Not, I wouldn't have been surprised if that actually made an appearance. Detective Comics like I don't know thirty or something. Yeah, <laughs> just in the background. Super low. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's such an expansive film, and the pacing early on is almost like like you have to get get into it because it's like mm. it's hitting you so quick. Um, and of course, Nolan he's adamant about trying to do as much as possible without CG. And there's there's a couple. There's, there's and this is not a spoiler. There's these little interludes in this, like in between scenes where you see like particles and things, and it's kind of like mm-hmm. here's the quantum realm as if it's inside Oppenheimer's head or something it like that. It was Ant Man, right? And yeah, isn't it funny that this is the the the, the better quantum realm yeah. movie of, of the year? Uh, when Ant Man's whole thing is that there's them get out of the quantum realm. Anyway, uh, but you know there's these like particles, and at one point there's like these rings spinning around each other. And I, mm-hmm. I was sitting watching that and going, you know, I'm not saying I can tell this is a practical thing, but because I know it's Nolan, I'm looking at this and going, I bet he did this with a practical effect. Like oh, th- yeah. this is a microscopic camera looking at like some bubbly liquid or something like that that he's he's yeah. using for this effect. Like you can just. For all those little cutaways, you can just feel the macro lens that on the high-speed camera, and mm-hmm. it's just every time. So there's a lot of stuff like that, of course. Um, the Trinity test itself uh, is spectacularly directed. Obviously, I won't say mm-hmm. anything about it yet, but obviously it's going to be in the movie. It's kind of the, the linchpin of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, that's very big. You know, people have heard a lot about him setting off an actual explosion. I don't think he technically set off a nuke, although people like to joke that he did. I was about <laughs> to make that joke, so yeah. <laughs> but I, I do believe there were some explosives set off to get some of the, the shots. So, Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently, I, I, I just for some brief interview stuff, I saw him talking about how they experimented with, like, putting in certain chemicals like magnesium so they'd have little extra sparks in the explosion you know just mm. little things like that like they would actually design what the explosion would look like on a on a chemist level there's so many scenes in this movie where it's just a bunch of people sitting around talking about like how is this explosion going to work and you just know that behind the scenes the exact same talks <laughs> were happening on an actual practical level yeah yeah uh but of course, in the movie, you know, talks, they didn't have to have this guilt weighing over them that they were going to use this on any... No, one. it was just sheer excitement. They were like, uh, yes, <laughs> let's do it. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's, I'm trying to think of what else to talk about without... Because I feel like everything interested in what he really, like, discusses is all, yeah. you know, getting into what the movie actually does. Uh, with, well, with, with, I, I suppose, would it be spoilers to say what the two different, like, timelines are? What the two different frame, what fission and fusion are? I wouldn't. I wouldn't get into discussing why they're named that. I think mm-hmm. that's very thematic and very much going to spoiler territory. That's fair. Uh, but I, I would say that so fission's the color timeline, and that's the majority of the movie. And effectively, whenever we're seeing that, we're seeing the perspective of Oppenheimer himself and him giving this account in a hearing that he had to give, and mm-hmm. I think it was 1954. Um, and then the black and white segment is Robert Downey Jr.'s character, uh, uh, Strauss, or what was the correction? Strauss? Strauss. No, I thought that, it was... No, because he correct because he... That was like a pivotal... In that case, it was Strauss, then. No, no, no. no. It, like, it was Strauss, mm-hmm. and he made it simpler, like Strauss. Like, he made it simpler. Oh, I thought it was a Z, like a Z sound on the end. That's how I heard it. Um, regardless, regardless of how you pronounce his name, because mm-hmm. uh, clearly we're just... <laughs> not good at catching that 
um that's uh robert Downey jr's character and when we're getting his perspective from another tiering type situation later on in mm-hmm. the timeline i think it's 1958 uh that's when it's in black and white so it's from yeah. his perspective uh, he's, so. he's a he's just a big politician guy who's getting a cabinet hearing yeah. sort of thing for the presidential cabinet so yeah, so that, that's very much how the movie's framed. And we kind of bounce between their different like takes and accounts of things that were happening. Um, With heavy focus on Oppenheimer's. Like, Strauss yeah, does yeah. keep popping up, but it's mostly that, Oppenheimer's. That's what made me think more than anything else of Memento. Because the ratio mm. of the color segments to the black and white segments in that movie is probably quite similar to this movie. Yeah, probably. Uh, it, it felt kind of like that to me. And it makes sense as well, because uh strauss is a as a person only knew oppenheimer after world war ii so mm-hmm. his sort of perspective really only encompasses that sort of part of his life so uh but so even when i tell you that you know to you guys the audience you can already imagine that anytime we're cutting to that part of like his perspective that's always set later in the timeline and everything oppenheimer's talking about and then yeah. of course as the movie goes on they start to intermingle a bit and Whatnot. Yeah, there are so. there are points where we see stuff that originally was black and white, meaning that it was from Strauss's perspective, is then retold in color, which means that it's from Oppenheimer's perspective, and then vice versa as well. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot to get into um, from a craft perspective, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will just say right now, like, forgive us for, like, if I just approximate a date or, you know, don't yeah. know every character's name. Just roll with it because there's too many people. So all this takes place in like 2021, somewhere around. <laughs> I saw I saw a tweet. Someone asking, "Does Oppenheimer have a post-credit scene?" And someone replied, "You're living in it." <laughs> I like that. That's good. Um, That's so accurate. <laughs> before we get into spoilers, I do. I know this is a a thing that Tim does. You know, the theater experience. Oh, go on, yeah. So did you did you have an okay time at the theater? I did. Interestingly, I all I like I said last week when I talked to you that I was probably maybe going to cave and see it on Friday on release date and then just see mm-hmm. it again on the Tuesday because we were recording on Wednesday. Yep. And I actually was caving. Like I, I wanted oh. to do it on Friday. And even though I was looking at the morning show and thinking, oh, they'll they'll be fine. Um they weren't sold out by any means, but all of the good seats were gone. Yeah. Like, all of the middle seats were completely gone. So I was like, okay, I guess I won't do that then. Uh, I checked, like, a showing a little bit later in the day. Same thing. Uh, and all of the prime evening showings were all completely sold out, and I've not right. seen that for a movie in a long time. And both that and Barbie. Because we can't ignore Barbenheimer as a thing, of course. P- people True. are... It's taken the, the world by storm as Barbenheimer <laughs> this past uh, weekend. So, I think what's wild about it is that, yeah, this probably boosted them a little bit, having this meme of them being together and people oh, yeah. contrasting them. But I do think it's interesting that even without that, that both of these movies are tracking and getting way more buzz than any of the big sequels that came out right? pretty much all this year. And I think it clearly shows that audiences, by and large, are, are sick of the superhero sequels for the most part. They're sick of nostalgia things like Indiana Jones and Dial of Destiny. Um, you know, the Fast and the Furious movie didn't do that well as much as it could have. I, I think what audiences are sick of and what they have been sick of is cashing in. Mm, like, yeah, these are these are both movies that 
didn't have to be made. They didn't have a pre-existing thing to, I mean, Barbie is Barbie, but like Barbie's existed forever. It's not needing a movie right now. I, I mean, I feel like you, you can make the argument, obviously the studio greenlit it for those reasons, but, and I have not seen it yet, but it seems like they let Greta Gerwig go and make her movie where she yeah. has a bunch of satire and stuff. So I, I do look forward to seeing it. It's meant to be pretty good. I've not seen it yet, yep. but uh, we'll get there. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll no. do it. We'll do a Gerwig season at some point. And... <laughs> so uh, just to reiterate, theater experience. Yeah, so that's, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was perfectly fine. By the time yeah. I went to go see it, it was still busier than I would have expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a early Tuesday showing, but it was you know, I, okay. I booked my ticket the day before just to make sure I got a good seat. And, yep, same, uh, yeah, that was that was about. So um, I envy you. I I I had I booked my seat and it got pretty close to center, not quite dead center, but pretty close to center. And when I got there, there was someone already sitting in the seat to my right, and I was like, no problem whatsoever. And as the movie started, a group of three. I want to call them men, but I will instead call them boys, entered in and sat down next to me. And no big deal for maybe the first hour of the movie. But then the boy next to me, the boy directly to my left, age 16, 17, somewhere in there, (laughs) he decided this would be the point where he starts his stand-up career. This was it. (laughs) And so every time there was any sort of anything happening in the movie, I would hear him lean over to his friends and speak, not quietly, in just a normal voice. Whatever hilarious quip he came up with in that moment. Whatever ha-ha funny he had going on. By the end of the movie, I was seriously considering going to jail. (laughs) I didn't, obviously, but I was considering it. So, just letting you know, at certain points, maybe right around when the bomb drops, I might have been a little bit tense for other reasons than the movie. But, um, Mm. yeah, theater experience, subpar, I would say. (laughs) Mm, Yes, well, um, human beings are a variable into of themselves. Yes. Can't count for the human factor in a movie watching experience i will say i didn't see any phones so plus one on that oh that, well there you go that's a, that's a yep. start uh so yeah i think without further ado we'll just say spoilers then for oppenheimer so we can talk about it and and full and you know sometimes we'll try and go through a movie in order that mm-hmm. is absolutely impossible mm-hmm. yeah. um you know after one viewing of that if I, even if even if i could watch it five times and note down every scene I still think it wouldn't be optimal just because a lot of the scenes are so quick. They're, they're jumping around so much. It wouldn't work for this movie. It just isn't the, the structure that it lends itself to. Like the first half of our review would be, trust me, we'll get around to that. And then the second half would be, remember in the first half when we said yes. that? Yes. Like that's all it would be. So, I mean, I guess... Let's just talk, I mean, about, let's talk about Trinity. Let's talk about the bomb going off. Oh, we'll we're start, just going to the bomb? We'll All start right. there. I, I want to talk about All how right. that scene's captured, and we'll, we'll, we'll spiral out from there, and wherever so this, the, the, the heat takes us. That's fair. That This is now, we're jumping to two hours into the movie almost exactly. I did check. Oh, really? You want yeah. to know when the bomb dropped? <laughs> it, it drops at one hour and 58 minutes into this movie. 
Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the way this is captured is is wonderful. It it's mm-hmm. you know obviously there's a lot of tension. You've got all the different scientists all sort of like taking their different positions and the safe lines where they can watch from a distance. One yeah. guy's putting on his, his lotion. Some guys are putting on their fancy... Uh, I won't even say sunglasses, but they're protective goggles to... It's it's like the glasses you would wear during like an eclipse or something. Yeah, yeah. Plan on staring at the sun, which makes sense. I gotta say, with the tension, though, I I, I found myself halfway through, like, I was getting nervous. I, I It was building up this tension so well. And, like, we all know what's going to happen, as you said. Like, mm-hmm. we know that they test the bomb, and we know it goes off. Like, this is just a well-known fact. But I was still, even knowing that, getting this feeling of nervousness of like, is something different going to happen here? Like, I <laughs> are we about to go into some alternate history movie that we yeah. weren't expecting? And that wouldn't shock me with Nolan actually. See if like there was like a twist here where mm-hmm. things didn't happen as expected, I'd be like, oh, yeah. what, what are we doing? Oh, it's a science fiction there. All right, let's go. Like, like there's one point where a character specifically says, like, I bet you my entire salary that this bomb will go off. And, like, I was sitting there like, that's a big bet, guy. Are you sure you want to do that? And I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. I know what happens. What are you talking about? Well, hindsight is, you know, 2020, yeah. as they say. Um, yeah, I, like, so the, the, the big choice here is that when the blast does go off, obviously there's this mm-hmm. great countdown, is yes. that it's accompanied with silence. Like, you don't hear mm-hmm. the explosion. You see the the light, um, you, you see, and there's a great moment with Oppenheimer. We've got a close-up on his eyes. And notably, Oppenheimer, after a few seconds, chooses to remove his goggles. He wants to look at this with his naked eyes because it's mm-hmm. it's what he's done, right? And we'll talk about kind of his building, you know, the the, the guilt or the concern that's starting to yeah. come in towards the actual bomb going off. But he, 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 he needs to see it with his naked eyes. And obviously, they set up the famous quote earlier mm-hmm. in the film. It's a sex scene with Florence Pugh. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I was shocked when that line came out in that scene. Yeah, yeah. Well, it comes out in that scene because she's like, "Read from this this fancy book you've 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 got," and mm. you hear it again here uh, before it fades to black at the end of this scene. You you know, it fades to black over the the, the bright explosion. It fades to black, and you hear, "I have become death, the destroyer of worlds." And it's like, I mean, that's the perfect time to drop it. You know, outside oh, yeah. of when you set it up, obviously, because yeah. this is literally the moment where that's happened. Um, mm-hmm. Which, by the way, is a prequel to Twin Peaks. Great film. Highly mm-hmm. recommend it. Um, yeah. So, no, it's prequel to Terminator as well. Honestly, anything that involves a nuclear bomb in any capacity, this is a prequel to. It's great. I mean, <laughs> technically anything that's set post-1945, it's a prequel to. Yeah, but I mean, you know, <laughs> like, it's a bit weird to say, oh, Oppenheimer, the prequel to Showgirls. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm watching that as my double building next time. <laughs> That's going to be a... Barbie wasn't gonna... hardcore enough for you after Oppenheimer. No, not at all. No, I, like... So this moment is wonderful. You can mm. hear nothing but his breathing, effectively. And then you yeah. hear... And then you realize it's the breathing from the sex scene earlier on. It's not his breathing literally right now. It's mm. the breathing from that earlier scene, and then it ends with that quote. Um, but then, of course, there's that great thing where the shockwave hits and it and this right. is like a jump scare because it's so freaking oh, yeah. after the silence that this bomb's had this shockwave is so loud i do wonder because obviously sound does travel slower than light mm-hmm. 
it seems like the sort of thing that Nolan would do to time it out perfectly of like, this would have been actually how long the distance between light and sound would have been. Uh, maybe, like, I didn't get the impression that it would actually be silent though before the shockwave. Uh, well, it wasn't. Here's the thing. It was silent. Like the reason that we consider it to be silent is because all of that tense music that was building up to that moment cut out. But like in the moment where they dropped this thing, nothing else they're in the middle of a desert nothing else is going on so it would be dead silent when they do this no i know but you still hear the explosion i'm sure like they're doing no you what... don't like that's what i'm saying it takes time for sound to get there you would not hear anything until that shockwave hits that is the fastest time that sound can travel is that shockwave and light gets there earlier it's not that far. It feels like it felt like he was watching for a while though before the shot. Oh yeah, no, no, no. I'm not. I'm not saying like, yeah. it's definitely accurate. It does feel like it's a bit long, but I do wonder if this is a thing that Nolan might have timed out to make it like actually how long it was. It just seems like the kind of thing he would do. I mean, I feel like to to me, like in the moment, I wasn't thinking about the accuracy of like how quiet. Oh, it no. would- it would be uh, until the shockwave hits. I assumed there would be noise before the shockwave because I, I would mm. still assume that you would hear... I mean, maybe you wouldn't. Maybe it would just be silent until you, you get the, the shockwave. Yeah. But I, I was thinking this was more about in the moment, like Oppenheimer isn't... like He's so oh, yeah. focused on the explosion itself that he's not hearing anything else around him. Like everything. Yeah, no, just, I mean... You know. when, when I say bringing that up, it's only me thinking about it after the fact. In the moment of the movie, I'm yeah. like, no, this is just for this effect, and it's beautiful. Yeah, and then, of course, once the shockwave hits, it is this jump scare of the sound just hitting. And then you see it, and what's so great is that the other like two groups of people who are watching at different distances, as the shockwave gets slightly weaker for mm. each one because they're further away, and it's like, okay, all right, really fun. And... This scene is captured so well, it's so bombastic, it's so... And, you know, we've had all these moments throughout the film, like we say, of these little interludes of, like, shots of, like, particles, like, colliding, mm-hmm. or these rings spinning, and it's all made like, sort of represent the quantum realm, and the idea that we're all just particles floating around and, like, interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, like, you know, looks similar to some of the particles in the explosion, so it thematically fits this visual theme that we've been seeing the whole movie... And despite all this, this is only the second best directed scene in this movie. Yeah. Because the best directed scene in this movie is the gymnasium speech scene. Mm-hmm. Now, that, was, that scene was just an art piece. Like, you could remove that from all context of this movie and it would still stand as just a fantastic art piece. It's, it's phenomenal because it's this, it's this juxtaposition of him getting in there to this cheering crowd who are... Because basically throughout the film, there's these moments where he's either in the hearing or he's talking and debating science with someone about what may happen when the bomb goes off or the potential mm-hmm. of casualties or whatever it is. And you'll hear, like, this stomping sound. And I think even at one point you even see a quick shot of, like, feet stomping. But you don't really know what it's from. You just sort of get this quick glimpse and this, you hear right. this sound. And it's like this beating, drumming sound that's in his head. And you don't know until after the bomb's dropped and he goes to this thing that it's this. It's this, like, victory, we did it, like, you know. It's it's specifically not after the test. It's after they receive word that the bombs were dropped on Japan. You're quite right. It's after the the bombs have dropped in Japan, Mm -hmm. yeah. And he comes in and they're all cheering. And it's this wonderful thing where it's this tight close-up on his face. And another thing they've been doing the whole movie, which has paid off even more here, 
mm-hmm. is that there's a few very, very specific moments. Uh, notably, not all of them. There are some subtle ones that are set like earlier in the timeline, but the most notable ones when he's in the hearing room at one point and you see mm-hmm. the background behind him start to vibrate. Yeah. Um, and it's like this sort of shaking and it's like it's it's going and it's like getting ready to explode. Um, that happens obviously turned up to 11 in this scene. And then mm. you get the bright white light as if a nuclear bombs went off. And it's, he's saying things that the crowd wants to hear. Like, he, he's he been slowly over the last portion of the film growing more guilty about the use of these bombs and he's tried to, like, talk them out of it. Maybe just the threat of having it would be enough to end, like, Japan's involvement in the war, things like that. Yeah. And instead he ends up saying out loud... You know, I'm just, I'm just. It's just a shame that your know, Germany already surrendered before we we could use it on them. The crowd cheers, and he doesn't really mean that. He's saying that because you know, right? But it's it's to really put into perspective of the cheer. They're not like you see them cheer. Yeah. But it's uh, that same way when the bomb went off. It's dead silent. You hear yes. the sound of everyone's chairs moving as they stand up. You hear the sound of people rustling, but not a single voice is heard in this cacophony of visuals. Because- and it's almost like the the cheer itself um, is like because it's the, cheer- the bomb, yeah. Well, yeah, it's like the bomb. Obviously, that's not what I was, <laughs> what I was getting at, though. Uh, is is like the cheer itself? Like, it is the incorrect response. It's the response that feels wrong, right? So you yeah. don't hear that. You just hear the the noises around the cheer. But then going back to it, it's like the bomb thing is that you don't hear anything until the shock waves hit after when he's walking mm-hmm. back. And he even steps in what's, you know, a body of someone who's been in a nuclear blast. Like he, yeah, you like know, the charred remains. Everyone's cheering around him and he steps in the charred remains of someone who's been killed by a nuclear bomb. And there's a lot of glimpses of other things as well. Uh, there's glimpses of, because you know, there was some scientists who didn't want to drop the bombs. They wanted to have a petition to, yeah. to not fire it because, hey, we've made this thing and now we're all realizing just how much devastation it's going to cause and mm-hmm. how much the world is going to change because of all this. That scene it's, is absolutely masterful. It is breathtaking. Yeah. No, I mean, there's that, like you said, it kind of, this scene happens probably about, I don't know, 15 minutes after the Trinity test. Something it's, like it's, that, yeah. It's very close afterwards. But it does feel like this, the, the Trinity test was the moment of release for the tension that has been built up over the past two hours it was this they kept on building and building like oh is this test going to work there's all these issues with it it's it's this is the moment where you finally managed to hit that crescendo and you say okay take a breather take a second you did it but then much like the characters in the movie reality comes back in hard where okay you did it now we're going to use it for real and it immediately ramps back up that yeah. feeling of tension and and guilt just to it's, eleven. It's almost on a meta level, like no one's, oh, oh, like, so when you're watching a movie and let's say it's a heist movie, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you're assembling the team for the heist, and that's kind of what happens in this movie. He assembles these scientists to, to yep. build the bomb, right? And they even don't call it the bomb; they call it the gadget to sort of like make everyone feel better about it because you know we don't really like well, making assume- weapons. I assumed it was that and also due to the major theme of this movie of anti-spy stuff. Yeah, it could be a bit of that as well, but I think it was yeah. more just to like make everyone yeah. feel a bit better about it. Uh, mm-hmm. we'll, talk, we'll talk about uh, that in a bit more detail, but well, we y- you've got all that um, building up in the first two hours. Like, it's okay, it's a movie with a group of characters with a mission, and you're building mm-hmm. up to that Trinity test, 
And even though you know the historical context of this, there's still part of you because you're watching a movie and you're following these characters trying to achieve something that they're all feeling tense about. That, like any movie with a heist or anything comparable, you kind of want them to succeed. The, the tension is in, I want them to pull this off. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's this, this glorious success. It's like, it works. It's like they've done the thing they've been planning for the whole movie. And then, of course, the movie is about the reality of what this thing they've just done is. And I think the movie's kind of structured in that way, where you get a two-hour movie building up to the successful Trinity test and the, the creation of the atom bomb. And then you've got the hour after that. It's like, but this part's the most important part, is the fact that this thing now exists, that it's now been used on real people. And mm-hmm. the the race that might now happen between the, the US and the Soviets to have bigger and more destructive bombs. Yeah. And, like, I, I think... The idea of like tying the movie to the audience like that, where you you almost get as kind of like in the the excitement of like getting to the explosion because we want to see the boom because we're a movie mm-hmm. audience we want to see the fireworks and then afterwards you go oh but now we have to accept the reality that we have just now we yeah. have this thing and people are going to die and it's this devastating thing and I think a big part of this movie obviously is the effect this is going to cause the world not just the one or two places that are bombed but mm-hmm. the fact that the world is now changed uh, yeah. because of it i i think that it's super interesting how this was uh laid out in terms of structure in because if you took out everything that had to do with anything after uh the dropping of the bomb specifically there's a scene in it where he he decides to come up with a code with his wife that if it's successful, he'll call and say to take the sheets in mm. just so he can pass the news along. As soon as he relays that news, she gets the call. Her face drops a little bit. Uh, maybe relief, maybe guilt, who knows? But it fades to black. If you take everything that chronologically happens after that mo- point out of the movie, it's its own movie. It's its own hour and a half, hour to 45 minute long movie of just building up to the tension of they did it, they built the bomb. And that within its own right is a plot. It's a story that can be built out, but you lose this overarching theme of the guilt behind it, of this way of how it impacts these characters. And that's what the remaining hour and 15 minutes that have already been peppered in before this and are continuing after this really push it to that next level of what can be done with this story because it's not an inspirational tale it's a cautionary one it's cautionary it's it's interesting because i think i've seen some people debate about whether or not the movie wants you to sympathize with oppenheimer at certain points Mm. particularly when they have this like hearing this trial uh there's a big part of the movie early on where he's getting security clearance so he can officially start working on the manhattan project yeah and a big part of the the post world war ii stuff when there's this hearing is that they are now saying that maybe he should have that revoked because mm-hmm. he's got ties to communists, things like that. We'll get into all those details later. But there's moments where, because like there are obviously bias, right? There, this is kind mm-hmm. of a witch hunt by certain people, right? Especially oh, yeah. later on, we find out who's behind it. And we find out that, no, no, this is a bit of a witch hunt. And I did a quick skim of the Wikipedia to see, like, you know, is this stuff that just basically straight up happened to the point where a few, not that long ago, someone retroactively kind of like you know from the government said no 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 like he was basically hunted for things uh, that weren't true he was clearly loyal the whole time and if anything evidence from like soviet sources over the years have only further proven that he never ever uh like 
you know, mm-hmm. did anything espionage like or leaked anything to the Soviets. So he he was posthumously given back his security clearance. Yes, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so, but there's definitely moments in there where it's like, okay, he is definitely a victim of other characters in this scene, mm-hmm. and I think there is a question from some people where like I don't know how like where people are like I don't know how comfortable to feel about feeling sympathy for Oppenheimer because understandably he's a figure because of what he did help create and because the drive that he had to make something led to something as destructive as the atom bomb. Mm -hmm. But I think the movie quite smartly leaves it very open to the audience to decide where your sympathies will and will not lie. And I think the big thing when you get to that last hour, especially the movie, is that it presents you a character who has clearly done things that he himself regrets. And it is true that in real life, he tried. He argued against the creation of a hydrogen bomb, which was even bigger mm-hmm. than the atom bomb. He argued against that. He wanted regulation. You know, he was doing all these things. So he clearly did have those feelings and thoughts in real life. But, you know, like, you understandably might feel conflicted about just yeah. rooting for this man and just, like, forgiving him for what he's done. And I think... The movie, in part, is trying to challenge these ideas of saying, okay, let's look at the circumstances around us. Is it just his fault? Or is it also the fault of the system that pushed him into making it? Is it the fault of the race to make it? Is it the fault of the others around him who were also pretty excited about making it? And then on top of that, I think the other smart things that it adds in here is that clearly there's other forces here that are also unsympathetic, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Robert Downey Jr.'s character by the end turns out to also be various shades of grey in and of himself in fact um you know he he you know effectively just wanted to turn oppenheimer into not a martyr per se because that's what he didn't want literally actually because that, that's yeah. why they had their hearing in a, like a closet basically because well, they didn't the, want the whole the whole thing of robert Downey jr's plot strauss's plot is that he offered oppenheimer a job and it seems like oppenheimer took it but mm. in taking it he Strauss believed that Oppenheimer was turning the scientific community against him and also following a very public like opinion piece basically by Oppenheimer against Strauss. He he basically just got butt hurt and made it his life's mission to ruin Oppenheimer in the most backhanded and mean spirited ways possible. Yeah. And what's interesting is that I think the ending is ambiguous. And when I say ending, I mean the end of the timeline rather than mm-hmm. like the final scene. Is and this is what made me think of Fallen a little bit. I think it's kind of open. If <sighs> I think it's a little bit open. If Oppenheimer, in some level, at least in the context of the movie, I'm not really talking about yeah. the real world here. Mm-hmm. But in the context of the movie, is I think it's open to interpretation that Oppenheimer kind of set up strauss to to have the fall that he had right at the end which made me think of following it made Mm -hmm. me think of following that this one-upmanship kind of happened and ultimately came and bit him in the ass uh so you know i I thought that was interesting and maybe argue even a bit of prestige actually now i'm thinking about it as well yeah true Uh, um okay so one thing i did want to bring up is as you're saying there's this there's this concept of like you know who's responsible who's really that yeah, I think the bigger theme here, though, and the one that permeates, I, I think this might be the central theme, more or less. Uh, it comes into the whole guilt aspect of it, but it is how responsible is a or how responsible is a person's past for their present? 
I think is the the core focus here because there's this whole big thing that the movie goes over of like oh he was you know former communist and he did all these things and he did all this and then he changed he he put those things behind him in order to work on the Manhattan Project and then once he's done the Manhattan Project he feels this guilt about what he's built the thing that he's created and the death that he's caused because of it but then like his communist ties come back up again and he's it's it's all these things of people saying like you're not responsible you're responsible for this all these different opinions coming in on it but i think the primary focus is how much are the things that you did things that can actually like that you should stand for now regardless of your feelings on them like if somebody like I don't want to get too much into modern stuff, but when it comes down to the sort of thing of like somebody going back on someone's Twitter feed or something and finding some horrible shit they said back in the day, is an apology enough? Is that enough that it's like, okay, they've learned, they've changed, they've done that? Or is that something that someone should be labeled with that they did for however long? Is, is the, Are the things you do the things that define you or are you able and to change as a person let's face it there's no bigger like you you can't make that scale bigger arguably than the man no. who made the atom bomb i suppose as, as far as labeling someone for the rest of their life of doing something yeah no that's def, that's definitely a big part of the movie there's no denying that it's there's, mm-hmm. there's constant evidence brought up in his hearing which is oh this is a recording from 15 years ago and you right. didn't recount it perfectly well because it was 15 years ago i don't remember exactly what mm-hmm. i said but you've got a recording so why are you even asking me i, I think and obviously it's just to catch him out and make him look like he's yeah. lying but i i think the best point in this movie that furthers that is that they uh bring up that oppenheimer hasn't won a nobel prize and he says oh maybe i will for this and they say you'll make a nobel prize for making a bomb and he comes back with alfred nobel invented dynamite and it was because his regret for creating such a destructive force that he made the Nobel grants to further science and peace and all these good things. So it is this idea that people can do good even if they did something bad before. But then, you know, you come back on that. And I don't think that the character of Oppenheimer truly does believe that about himself. I think he thinks that the thing that he's created defines him that he is not ever going to be outside of the man who created nuclear weapons and yeah i think that's there obviously from a character perspective that's absolutely his thing is that once he's done this like he almost like again it's left open for the audience but there's a suggestion from his wife that he's Mm -hmm. letting himself go through this like sort of bullshit trial when he could just sort of pull out and say okay take my security clearance i don't have to sit through this you know this awful tirade of my character but he yeah. puts himself through it, and there's an implication from his wife that he's doing this out of guilt, that he he feels he deserves to be put on trial and torn apart for what he's done. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not like a definitive thing. It's just sort of like, hey, maybe that's how he felt. Maybe on some level that that is what was going through his mind. And mm-hmm. I think, like I say, though, there's this kind of examination from a larger context of like all of these other influences. And it's, you know, th- this idea that the government wants, obviously this bomb to be pursued and they're looking for results matt damon's a big representative of that because he's the one there sort of saying you have to get this done he's the one kind of right. like babysitting him he's but the military man whenever he interacts with anyone else from the government or military and like either they're just want the bomb and they want to drop it and we'll talk about truman we'll talk about uh james remar's character yep. we'll talk about all that stuff or 
they're looking for commies, right? And they're being suspicious of him or anyone he knows from his past. Even though it's very clear, you know, from the start of this movie, that the communist, like, parties in the US weren't, like... <laughs> it was clearly just, like, something that was challenging the norm. It, and that... it was it was just groups of people trying to unionize. Yes. That's all it was. It wasn't like, we want Stalin to take over America. It, it was... Unions. Communist became a very dirty word. It became this stigmatized mm. thing in Western culture for such a long time. Arguably, it still kind of is. It's oh, just, it absolutely is. It's just not... Uh, because, because the Soviets fell, it's not t- mm. treated exactly the same way anymore. But it, you know, right. it's still this dirty word where if you, if you even say you agree with something that sounds vaguely communist, like all of a sudden, yeah. all the capitalists will all raise their eyebrows at you. Well, that was the that was this whole movie took place in the McCarthy era, and that's what that whole thing was was just yeah. every everyone who's even suspected of being a communist is able to be blacklisted from just everything. And I think I think it's this uh, examination of the climate upon which this all happened in, and the forces other because there's a great um, sort of running thing, and this is the other interesting thing about Oppenheimer and Strauss is kind of like opponents effectively in the later mm-hmm. parts of the story is that they're both jewish and yeah. th- that's why the, the name change thing comes up is that strauss changed the pronunciation of his name to sound less jewish whereas mm-hmm. oppenheimer didn't and you know oppenheimer and krumholtz's character or krumholtz's character sorry like they both talk about being jewish and they're even in germany when they're having that conversation but this is before everything obviously with nazis in power right it's a little bit before that uh but they even they can sort of tell you know things are rising here clearly you know i think he says is it just me or do we not feel like we're welcomed here you know right that that subject comes up and then of course they're talking about all this um and when they're debating later about like uh krumholtz's character he wants to leave the project he doesn't want to be a part of and this is when they're just starting to build the town for all the scientists to live in to work on it and oppenheimer's like justification and the way he's obviously justified this to himself as well mm-hmm. is look this bomb being dropped will stop all of the other bombs from ever being dropped right it's one bad thing that will then stop all of these things mm-hmm. and like obviously yes he's he's trying to convince himself of that he's trying to convince him of that and there yeah. is, it's not like it's not the most ridiculous logic either, right? On some level, I understand what you're saying, but it, it also feels like he's trying to, you know. Yeah, well, I think the important little addition that he makes onto that is like, yes, we're building this weapon. This weapon is horrible. This weapon is terrible, and that's why the Nazis can't get it first. Yes, like they specifically say we're building this only so we can have it before the Nazis. Which, which is why things get very interesting when the, the, the war with Germany is over and right. the government still want it. They still yep. want this bomb. And all of a sudden, the scientific community, eh, the ones who were under the impression that they, they were like aligned idealistically with the military or the government, immediately mm-hmm. that, that harsh reality <laughs> comes crashing in yep. where, no, they still want this. They still want to like show that they've got the bigger, tougher weapons and make an example mm-hmm. of using one of them as quickly as possible. Like, yep. this Trinity test happens in July and then the bomb was dropped in August. I don't have the yep. exact dates in my mind, but... All I know is that August 15th is when Japan surrendered. So, and the te- yeah. the test happened July 6th, I believe, was the date they said in the movie. So 
one month and one week was all it took from I thought it was like in July actually but yeah I mean regardless it's still... yeah so at least a month around a month was all it took from the testing to the war ending yeah which just shows the sheer power that they were actually packing here and 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 that's the other thing is that there's that little bit like before we get to that great like gymnasium scene where he's given the speech and mm-hmm. it's this like he's saying what they want to hear and he doesn't believe any of it and like the you know the 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 crushing silence of the guilt around them is, is coming the little yep. period between that it's actually this little period where he's feeling very stressed because he's left out of everything where he's handed over his bomb and now no one's telling them anything like now, yep. now he's left out the loop because he's just the scientist and it, it, he, hear, he literally hears it on the radio oh well the, the nuclear bomb's been dropped mm-hmm. on he's waiting for a call from matt damon for like weeks just hoping that he can get some sort of info on like is it going to happen soon when's this going to be when's all that can be and he ends up hearing it the same as everyone else in the world yeah and there's like other scientists like rami malek like when he shows up he tries to hand a petition to oppenheimer yeah. and all because he's going to meet uh james remar's character who's I, the secretary of war i think thank you <laughs> it was secretary <laughs> of something i can't remember <laughs> but he he's going to see him and he's like, like I'll, I'll appeal to them and i'll i'll, I'll get i'll give them our concerns and he does mm-hmm. try to in the meeting he does try to give yeah. them the concerns and immediately matt damon like shuts them up and says no but you're with us right that we need this weapon and yeah. this scene probably got the biggest laugh as weird as that sounds out the whole movie yeah because uh, james remar's like, oh we've got 12 possible targets to drop the bomb blah 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 um but i'm going to just scratch this one off the list because it's got a lot of important heritage to japan and also me and my wife had a honeymoon there so and there was a legit laugh in the theater when he said that yeah and i think it was mine too and apparently this was true that this was a true Mm -hmm. thing this guy crossed this off the list of potential targets because him and his wife honeymoon there well it's because matt damon uh actually (laughs) took him aside and said hey sir i'm a monuments man and we can't (laughs) we can't bomb that city (laughs) Don't remind me of bad movies. Come on. Sorry, sorry. Um, but no, it's it's. I I do appreciate this scene because it's also kind of the culmination of a lot of the other stuff going on. In that, ever since the beginning of this project, one of Oppenheimer's main things that he was putting forward is that this bomb, this weapon we're building, it is to be used against the Nazis, specifically the Nazis. Yeah. So, a there's the issue of using it on Japan, but b there's also been this running issue of in this war, Russia is our ally. Should they not be aware of this weapon that we're building? Should like because if we keep it secret, Oppenheimer puts forward that like it's going to spook them, it's going to scare them, and they're going to try to catch up. Rather than it being shared as a weapon that we all have, it's going to be something that the U.S. specifically has. And given and, that the Cold War then happened, he was right. Yeah, probably had some good points on that yeah absolutely um and i think i think that that idea because that's basically the last hour of the movie is what stirs back up that communist stuff again is because they have evidence that russia has made a nuclear bomb that they have caught up and it just stirs that oh well who's who was leaking stuff to russia who's the real problem here and it fuels what i think is really the second theme of the movie if the first one is guilt the second one is paranoia the second one is this idea of you can't trust anybody. The entire focus of Los Alamos from Matt Damon's perspective is compartmentalize everything because you can't trust anyone. Yeah, and the scientists are like, no, that's not how this works. We have to all communicate or nothing gets done. Right. Uh, which is interesting because 
so there's like a footnote basically towards the end uh, of like who was actually the spy who was actually leaking things and mm-hmm. ironically it was the guy that the military brought in it wasn't like someone that Oppenheimer picked right. mm-hmm. um, but what's interesting about it is that they never bring up in the movie the idea of mutually assured destruction which I thought they were going to I, I thought they would get to that point where that, that debate would come up Yeah. Um, and it never quite did but uh, yeah, obviously, once Russia is developing stuff, it's like, okay, they, they've they've got tests of the atom bomb, so we have to have the hydrogen bomb, which they refer to for a lot of the movie as the super. That's what yes. they were calling it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was something that suggested during the testing, or not even the testing, the development of the it's atom like bomb. It's like the very first meeting that all the scientists have together. One guy chimes yeah. up and says, like, look, we could waste our time with the atom bomb, or we could just jump to the end and make something that's ten times as powerful. Yeah, and then they're like, no, because we have to deliver this as quickly as possible, so we're not going to mm-hmm. do that. And of course, the rising kind of like guilt and like realization of what because when we go back to that scene where the guy's picking the targets and mm-hmm. Oppenheimer tries to say, "Hey, you know, some of the scientists believe that maybe like just a deterrent of having the bomb would be enough, whatever," and yep. he gets shot down. I think that's the scene where he like starts to really feel this disconnect with the people he's working for. You know, that's oh, the, yeah. You know, that's the time when that, for him, you know, I talked about how that, that reality came crashing down for the scientific community. I think for him mm-hmm. specifically, that was the moment where they're not going because to listen to me. They're, they're just so bloodthirsty to drop yeah. one of these bombs. They're not even going to entertain this idea. Well, that was, I loved Matt Damon's line in this scene, which was, we're dropping two bombs. The first to show them we can, and the second to show them that we can keep doing it. And which, that's, I, I thought that was like, horrifying the way that it was said but they just said it so casually so yeah. blase Which, of like yep i did not know that uh i like i legitimately i mean having not specifically looked into this i assumed mm-hmm. they dropped one japan did not surrender so they dropped a second i did not realize it was a planned thing to drop two mm-hmm. preemptively so yep. that's I mean, I mean the plan was keep dropping until japan surrenders but i guess that they figured we're not going to need more than two. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, that was, that was a horrific line, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, 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 but, that just shows the uh Well, the, I mean, that, the whole, that whole scene, it's so strange because, like you said, it's one of the few times that there is a laugh in the audience. But, like, he provides this list of 12 cities that they are potentially going to bomb because they, they run through the whole gambit of, like, there's no military structures that are of a decent size that it's actually going to make any sort of impact. And then they talk about whether or not they should send out evacuation notices to the citizens to like so that they can still demonstrate the power of Mm -hmm. it without the loss. But then they shut down that idea for like spy reasons and stuff like that. But what it really comes down to is the fact that there are 12 cities full of civilians that they're going to put out. And the funniest line in the movie is them saying like, well, this one's pretty like. And it it is a laugh. It's 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 so messed up that the fact that that is the point where it's a comedic beat it's a dark laugh there's no denying yeah. that it's oh, absolutely because yeah. it's, it's the cynicism of it is this guy because he has some connection to this location is just like oh i have the power to save that city in mm-hmm. my hands and he literally does he saves that city with a stroke of a pen you know th- yep. through a through a name and that is it and that's it that city saved and yeah th- this idea of obviously I've heard criticisms. Like some people are uh, critique that you don't see more of the effect of what happened in Japan. Mm. Um, and I went into the movie knowing that some people had criticised it for that. And I, I you know, on a va- on a sort of grander scale, I understand why that critique would maybe be there. But mm. even early on in the film, 
Um, well, I mean, before I watched that, I'm, I'm, I'm like, no, 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 I understand. Yeah. I understand. But so as I was watching it, though, even like in the first half hour, it was becoming very, very, very clear that this movie was always going to be from one of two perspectives. And because Oppenheimer didn't get to go and see, you know, the the, the bombing himself. Yeah, he has those little moments in his head where he's imagining being in the plane when, yeah. when the nukes dropped. We see that a few times. That's one of those things that's intercut with specific moments. And even the scene when he steps inside the charred body. Yeah, yeah. You get those moments, but you never mm. get, like, a scene where he, like, witnessed it himself or mm. we just cut to news footage of... There's, there's one Japan. sequence where him and all the other scientists, as far as I can tell, are being shown essentially a slideshow mm. of here's the, you know, here's what happened to people who were immediately in the blast radius. Here's the people who got the radiation sickness afterwards. And you never see what's on the slides. We just hold for a straight minute on Killian Murphy as he looks at these slides, becomes repulsed by what his weapon has done. Yeah, and he looks down, yeah. And he looks down. And that's... I think that's all it needed. I think that's enough to tell you, like, yeah, no, it caused messed up stuff, but the characters are aware of it. Yeah, you know, and a big part of this movie is kind of, like, the price of breaking new ground, right? You know, there's the whole, mm -hmm. like, the, the few interactions we have with him and Einstein are that Einstein clearly has this, like, regret for what, you know, like, he's seen all these younger scientists come in and take what he did to this, these new places, and yeah. he's clearly got this very reflective look on his work and his life that is not mm. particularly fond. Um, and obviously with Oppenheimer, it's even bigger because of what he actually made. But yeah. um, Well, just just with Einstein, this is one of my things I know trivia-wise, is that I, when quantum physics was more or less announced, when they said, like, this is a thing that could potentially be how things are actually run, Einstein came out against it and said no. God does not play dice. It's There's no way that it's some random underlying just, you know, <laughs> quirks and stuff. But in the end, he was proven wrong. Quantum mechanics is how the universe functions. And they, like they said in, throughout this movie, he's become too old to understand what he created anymore. Yes, relativity was the basis. It was the starting point to everything. But he outgrew his usefulness in regards to it. Much like Oppenheimer outgrew his usefulness to the US government. And yes. that's a big part of the, the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that even ties into why it's fission and fusion. Obviously, because in the timeline, that's the order of the bombs, is the fission mm -hmm. bomb was first and the fusion bomb was second. But also, in a more natural sense, uh, for, for the, the movie's characters, is that the first part of the timeline, and I mean everything basically up to like the end of the war, mm -hmm. is obviously the building of the bomb but in a character level it's oppenheimer effectively like losing all of these connections with people first it's all the people who are technically communist allies or friends that mm -hmm. he kind of betrays or goes goes away from to save his own neck and not in a super bad way but in just in a sense that he's, he's put in these positions where he has to kind of uh he's under question yeah, he has to distance yeah. himself from them it's all that stuff um you know obviously one of his his girlfriend effectively mm -hmm. you know do you commit suicide although apparently there's conspiracy theories that she wasn't actually it wasn't a suicide there i thought that was nolan's just nice little chef's kiss in that scene in is that it, we go it, it's blinking you'll miss it as well it's yeah, just a quick we, little thing we go through the scene she she drowns herself he lists off all these drugs that were in her system and we see that happening and then there's one shot where you see a glove on the back of her head retract and that's it they never draw attention to it and it's yeah. so clever 
Yeah. Uh, the belief being, of course, that the government uh, wanted him to be focused and not to have another potential communist ally. So, mm-hmm. Or even that the fact that they just didn't want the communists. Like, she was a major communist yeah, proponent, yeah. and so willing to kill. Yeah. Uh, by the way, did you know that uh, the topless Florence Pugh scenes in some countries have a CGI black I, dress? To cover I saw up? that 30 minutes before we started recording this. <laughs> really? Okay. I saw I saw a screen clip of it, and I was like, well, at least in a still frame, it does look convincing. I'll give them that. Anyway, so Fission is the separation of the atom, right? So the yes. idea is that he is literally losing connections. And there's even a plot point in the film where someone says to him, like, stop alienating all of the people in your community because one day you might have to rely on them and mm-hmm. what's interesting is that a lot of people do speak up for him when they have that shitty hearing like a lot of people do speak on his behalf yeah. and they are quite you know upbeat about it uh the second part though fusion which of course is the you know literally fusing you know two things to be- become an atom yeah. is effectively the two parts are oppenheimer and strauss and it's the explosion that happens when they do and it's, it's prolonged of course over years and how mm-hmm. it's told but it's the explosion that happens because they two butt heads and it go yeah. it it, res- it results in that hearing with oppenheimer losing his security clearance and then eventually the um, the complete explosion and detonation of uh the the committee hearing for him to get his seat on the the senate or whatever it is yep. mm-hmm. um so like you know the that's why, because I was I was waiting for like a third or a fourth like title to come up. Same, yeah, right. And it never happened. It's just those two. It's just fission and fusion. Which I meant to, like, mm-hmm. I don't know what the third would be, but uh, uh, Fallout. Yeah, Fallout is the first one I thought of as well. Yep. <laughs> but uh, even it's even begins with an F. It's even yep. keeping the the alliteration going. Isn't that what they did in Dunkirk? Weren't all three of them alliterative as well? Nah, because it was a day, an hour, and a week. Oh, that's right. It was the Times. That's what it was. That's right. Yeah. No, no, no. They had they had specific names for it, and then listed off how long it was underneath. Oh yeah, it was the the pier that we're on at Dunkirk, and then mm-hmm. the, the this I don't know what other ones back. Yeah, but I think they were all alliterative. So just one of those polling things again. Oh sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, so no, I like th- that like structure as well because mm-hmm. obviously we talked about the the gymnasium scene and how that's literally the visuals of the bomb as he's talking to people but when you mm-hmm. actually look at the structure of how having people around him separate over the course of his life and how it is more like a you know a fission bomb and mm-hmm. then how the conflict with downey jr in the second part of the timeline is more like a fusion bomb right that, and basically it's constantly comparing people to the particles it's p- comparing people to the atoms yeah well, that's, I think it's greatly done. Obviously, you and I both know how nuclear fission works because we both watch Chernobyl. <laughs> but um, I think that it's great because obviously the way that, that fission works is that you have these uranium atoms, you hit them with neutrons, and they start colliding into each other. They start throwing off their things and hitting each other. And I think that that's a perfect description of what was the entire Los Alamos setup is that you had all of these people, all these different backgrounds, but all mm-hmm. still very smart, intelligent, capable people that were bouncing off each other. And in the end, it resulted in the atom bomb. It, it resulted in this larger explosion, more or less, but not only an explosion literally, but also in what it results in afterwards, the arms race, the building up of munitions and stuff like that. It creates this, as you, as one character said, I think it was um, his wife, 
this change in those worlds, this drastic change that's going on where everything is just all at once suddenly different. Yeah, the world has just fundamentally changed after mm-hmm. those bombs are dropped. There's just no yeah. denying that. And, you know, and again, with the second part of the timeline being fusion, that even ties into the... I mean, obviously, literally, it came second as far as the bombs go, but mm-hmm. also the idea that there is escalation, that it becomes bigger, and that because there's this arms race now, that even the conflicts between the people behind them are starting to get bigger, and the power plays are starting to get more drastic. And... Mm-hmm. That that's just something that's there as well. So, it's... I mean, is is it worth bringing up the final line, like the actual final scene of the movie, not temporarily, but what was actually where we left off? Well, yeah, I mean, the final. So it does this thing early on, where very very early on in the film, it shows you the first time Strauss. Well, maybe in, not met, in... but certainly certainly hired Oppenheimer for this job at, at right. uh, Princeton or whatever it was, mm-hmm. um, and. Einstein's out in the garden, right? So this is all in black and white, and Oppenheimer goes out to say hello because he's met him before, and when Einstein's walking past Strauss, he sort of doesn't look at him and gives him a side-eye, effectively. Which is where that paranoia that Strauss has of him turning the scientific community against him really stems from, is that moment. Yeah, so he's convinced that he said something to him that turned Einstein against him, Mm -hmm. and... At the end of the film, we finally see... Well, real quick, midway oh. through the film, um, there's this idea, there's this problem they have to go up against where there is a chance... Oh, yeah, yeah, no, when... I, I was going to get to that. Don't okay, worry. Right. I, was, I wasn't going right. to just say the final line without right, <laughs> explaining well, that. I'll, I'll, just mention, I'll just mention it now, then. Um, there's this chance that when they set off the nuclear bomb, it won't stop. The whole thing is atoms colliding into each other, and there's a chance that when they start it, it will just set the entire atmosphere ablaze and end the world. And so Oppenheimer takes these calculations over to Einstein, who is still there in that garden. And he says, like, could you just check this? Could you see if it's true? Are we going to like start a fire that will end the world? And Einstein doesn't want to do the math. He puts, tells someone else is going to be more capable. Which, by the way, this, he... this really made me think of the Hadron Collider. Because mm-hmm. I remember when that was about to be turned on for the first the time holes. there was like this might make a black hole and end the planet <laughs> like that Which, always you know i guess we'll we'll hop back over to it real quick but tiny tangent is that uh, the first maybe half an hour of this movie is not focused on anything to do with bombs it's all about oppenheimer um getting a teaching position and then him and his team discovering more or less black holes they they work out the theory to say that black holes should be a thing that exists in the universe even though they haven't seen one yeah, yeah, we'll, so. we'll come back to that stuff because there's yeah. some other interesting beats in there. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so but, at the end of the film, we finally get to see the what actually was said between them, right? The, where mm-hmm. We see it in color now. It's from Oppenheimer's perspective. And it's mm-hmm. basically just him bringing this back up. He brings back up that, that, that concern. And there's, you know, there's references to it throughout uh, where they kind of just accept it and they even make some jokes about it where they're betting on like whether or not the world's going to end. And yeah. it's this gal's humor. And there's even a joke in the... It was, it's one of the few things I remember from the trailer is when he tells Matt Damon there's, you know, almost 0% chance that the world might end. And he's like, do you want better than that? He's like, well, yeah, zero would be nice. <laughs> uh, so, you know, at the end of the film, uh, the final moment is, is Oppenheimer saying, you know, we thought there was a chance that when we set off the bomb that it would start a chain reaction that would destroy the world. I believe we did. 
and like it ends on like this close up of his face with you know the the sounds all coming to stomping all the stuff that's been running throughout the film does some cutaways to like him in those positions that he imagined himself before yeah. where, like missiles are flying overhead you see the moment from terminator 3 i thought terminator the... 3 as well when i saw yep. all those i mean you don't see all the mushroom clouds but you see all the the it's like all the the rocket like yeah the you know, contrails smoke. going yeah. through the sky um and then there's a shot of like yeah, it looks like the world just slowly like being consumed by flames from space mm-hmm. um and i'm like how did nolan do this without cgi because i'm sure he did i'm sure there's nolan some fancy... traveled to a parallel earth and he set it on fire <laughs> that's 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 what i expect from nolan these days yeah uh, i'm sure it's a composite shot i'm sure there's like a you know a globe and then or maybe a real shot of earth even and then they yeah. probably t- had a sphere they set on fire and i was gonna say there's definitely it's not that there's no cgi it's that there's no fully cgi clips yeah there is there's digital touch-ups i'm sure there's touch-ups yeah i I imagine Mm -hmm. there is but it's Mm -hmm. obviously as much as he can he likes to avoid and then that's the final moment the movie ends on is Mm -hmm. at a certain point in time um you know he certainly felt that way that he had contributed to the end of the world and Mm -hmm. everything has changed and you know einstein this is like right after einstein said to him oh you know one day they're going to give you a medal and you know Mm -hmm. congratulate you on your achievements but it's not for you it's for them it's for the new people who are taking over that are like getting to say goodbye to you because you're irrelevant because that happened to me you know they gave me a medal but it wasn't for me you know if because he says it was oppenheimer himself you presented me with an award you know 15 20 years ago whatever it was but that wasn't really for me. That was for you because you yeah. were the one who was going to be driving things forward from then on. So it's it's like a retirement party where they announce your replacement at the party. It's like, well, <laughs> there you go. So and yeah, we get like some quick flashes ahead to like the sixties or whatever it is when Oppenheimer's getting this award. Uh, yeah. You know, so yeah, like these ideas um, of like how cataclysmic the world has changed because of what they have done and it does feel, and i think this, this is the weird thing is that this is true for lots of discoveries and scientific advancements throughout history mm-hmm. but naturally the further you go along and the more like, futuristic you get the bigger they become and the more like yeah. bombastic they are hence you know the atom bomb is this huge thing that changes the world but you know what else was a huge thing that changed the world the first time someone made fire right that pretty that was a pretty big change i mean can we that's the opening of this movie is it is a flame and it comes up with a subtitle saying prometheus stole fire from the gods for this reason he was shackled to a rock and tortured for eternity it's the obvious primitive thing to compare it to as the mm-hmm. you know the discovery or the creation of fire whatever you want to phrase it yeah um no it, like that stuff is is wild to think about and it's, it's basically painting what this the story of the atom bomb is in a sort of historical and world context mm-hmm. which is this is the most defining thing that has happened at least scientifically and arguably culturally in centuries because yeah. it's this thing that has fundamentally broke the ground of what's possible and it did change warfare there's a reason why the next war was cold the next big mm-hmm. one anyway obviously there were smaller wars but oh, yeah. like it, it was cold because yes if these nukes start flying we're all freaking screwed. So now we all have to be on these tiptoes. And obviously things have changed. John Oliver did this piece a few years ago about how no one even goes to the meetings in in Washington anymore about Mm -hmm. like nuclear safety. 
No one cares. It's this old subject that no one gives a shit about. Yeah. Meanwhile, it can still kill us. It can still kill all of us. We're all just used to the fact that we can all die. But if you talk to anyone who's from, you know, our parents' generation's age, Mm-hmm. and or even a generation before that they'll all tell you stories about sh- being shown how to hide under the desk in school and stuff Any, like that anybody who was cognizant during the cuban missile crisis during that yes. like, two-week period that's all those people know how big of a deal it is yeah and uh, sadly darkly uh i guess kids are being trained to hide under the desk still just for yeah. very different reasons yeah uh, um so one thing that i did want to bring up though is there's a point very early on in this movie where basically they, they you know, it's a normal random day. No big thing is happening. And then all of a sudden news breaks that a team has split the atom. They yes. have taken uranium and they have caused fission. And immediately within like 15 minutes, everyone's like, they can make a bomb out of this. So I, no, I, I think it's even quicker than that. Like he's looking at the newspaper and he says, mm-hmm. you thinking what I'm thinking? He's like, yeah, I'm thinking what every scientist and physicist is thinking right now over the planet. This yeah. can be turned into a huge bomb because this and is the, an and explosive that's what I love, force. That Oppenheimer, yes, he did create the bomb, but only because of the merit of he had the funding, he had the people, and he had the like know-how to do it. But regardless, it, at that moment, it was inevitable. Someone was going to make this bomb. And it's, it's made clear throughout the film as well that... The reason why the the Nazis probably didn't get to it in time is Mm. purely because Hitler viewed physics as, quote, Jewish science and did not want it to be pursued. Yeah, specifically quantum physics. He wouldn't let anything get involved with that. And also, when they did finally start making the bomb, uh, Niels Bohr, played by Kenneth Branagh, eventually reveals that he found out that the Nazis basically made a wrong turn. They started investigating down a dead-end pipeline that Mm. their team had already ruled out. So they managed to get a little bit faster time because of that. Yeah, because the Nazis had already been working on it for a couple of years by the time Mm -hmm. Oppenheimer and co. were were fully in swing. So, yeah, actually, there's a a great scene, or a couple of scenes early on that I do have to mention. It kind of like, you know, it's a bit of a character-building thing at the start, but it actually kind of represents the the rest of the story in a weird way, Mm -hmm. is... Oppenheimer is mocked by his professor when he's in university. And he is told that he can't go to the lecture, which turns out to be Kenneth Branagh, who's an older scientist giving a lecture. Um, Mm -hmm. He has to stay back and clean up the lab because he spilled something and he's accused of having no sleep. And Mm -hmm. he does so. He stays back and he's cleaning up the lab. And when he's putting things back into the cabinet where all the chemicals and little things go... He notices, I can't even remember what the substance was. Uh, uh, potassium cyanide. Thank you, cyanide. And he goes over and they establish that this this professor does eat apples at his desk and there's an apple sitting on his desk. And he takes a syringe and he puts cyanide in the apple. And then he goes to the lecture and there's a couple of scenes. And then we get, if I, I think we get some of the uh, the shots of the, the, the particles and stuff and things yeah. getting more tense right before he wakes up that morning. And he's like, shit. I might have like planted a seed to commit murder, and he rushes to the professor, you know, the lab to 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 stop it, and mm-hmm. he goes in, and it's actually Kenneth Branagh who's there talking to the professor, who almost eats it, and he he hits it out of his hand and says wormhole, which is a bit of a double, you know, meaning because yeah. of science, um, and all I'm like, so what you're telling me is, is he made a weapon 
and then realized of how devastating it would actually be if it actually was you know dropped and rushed to stop it from happening that's pre- mm-hmm. that's a pretty big bit of foreshadowing for he, what the rest of his story is he made a weapon solely because he could solely because he knew how to do it and he had the opportunity to yes. do it he let that weapon go out in the wild and then he had the only difference being in terms of the larger thing is this one he managed to stop before it was dropped yes um and i can't believe i'm going to quote from this film here but uh yes i know what you're about to say do it they were too preoccupied of whether or not they could they never stopped to think of whether or not they should that is Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, and bizarrely, it fits the atom bomb just as much as it does bringing dinosaurs back to life. Yeah, because yeah, it's like for for these scientists, at least up to a point, it's this like, can we do it? Can we do this mm-hmm. as scientists? Can we pull this off? And then, of course, you see that some of them are like debating, especially once the Nazis um, have you know have lost the war. It's like, well, we've beat them. Like we yeah. don't need this to beat Japan. Like they're def- like you know they're they're definitely going to lose. So why why are we still doing this? And like there's kind of you know there's there's activism almost within the scientists at the base. I I guess that's the major thing that I kind of want to bring up at this point because we've we've talked about like what the bomb is and how big of an impact it is. But half of this movie is solely about the interpersonal and how Oppenheimer views the world like his own personal beliefs regarding like again he was never quote unquote officially a member of the communist party but he attended all of these meetings he regularly pushed for his uh fellow lab mates and stuff like that to form unions to get better pay to to basically abolish the capitalist system that's that's something that he didn't like the idea of personal ownership is what he said earlier on he deep mm-hmm doesn't like the idea that one person can control this one thing. And throughout the movie, we see the fact that he was involved in this early on continuously keep on coming up and biting him in the ass throughout the entire movie, even before they make the bomb. Like you were saying, he was having troubles getting his security clearance the first time around. Oh, he's he's and, being investigated and scrutinized the entire time. Right, he's, absolutely. He's doing, you know, this top secret project for the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. And they, they had, like, the FBI following him. They had him searching through his trash and stuff like that. Um, and they just keep on building this up, the fact that he had these beliefs in his past. And, you know, he probably still does have these beliefs. He's just a lot less vocal about it. He, at one point, is uh, approached by a fellow scientist who is working on the Manhattan Project very early on, and he's telling him, like, I want you to be a part of this, but you need to shut up with the whole communist thing. And Oppenheimer, at that point, takes it to heart, and he says, yeah, okay, I get it, and I want to be a part of this. So he backs down. He, He... lowers down from communist to new deal democrat which 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 is interesting as well the idea that he has some beliefs that you know and it doesn't necessarily fit into a strict political party and i think that's true for a lot of people as you have and you just you kind of have to side with the one that's the closest to whatever you Mm -hmm. you know you believe in but he effectively has to give that up for the scientific pursuit which at the time is obviously what he wants to do he wants to give that up he gives up personal connections he gives up uh, talking about uh, these these political issues 
And then, of course, I, I think an element of the guilt that comes later is that he did give up a lot of who he was so that he could mm-hmm. do focus on this one thing, this one obsession that he had. Um, and that that like it almost like even catapults to this really pro- probably the most movie scene of the whole the whole movie is um when crumholtz after he's convinced to stay in the project right when he's saying he wants to leave um he he kind of like makes fun of oppenheimer because in this scene he's wearing like a military mm. coat he's like yeah. why are you wearing that he's like ah oh, we're technically you know working with the military so you know when in rome kind of thing mm-hmm. and he's like no nah, look you're a scientist they're military never forget that you don't think like them if you're going to do this then do it as you and there is literally a suit-up scene where he puts on the coat and the hat yeah. and takes his pipe and he's like he's 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 becoming oppenheimer he's the oppenheimer <laughs> i want to i want to when this starts streaming i'm going to take that scene and then i'm going to take like the iron man suiting up music <laughs> from the first movie and just play that over top and see how well it fits um but i mean it's a good moment but it is is very mm. much like this like sort of like struggle to try and still be him and what he believes in but obviously mm. he has this like you know, it's almost like the dangers of this curiosity that you know lead people to discover things, and obviously a lot of good things come from scientific discoveries. You know, yeah, medicines. I would I would say a couple of things come yeah. to mind, just the, one the, or two devices that make the world you know a better place, that make life mm-hmm. easier. The you know, lots of things, right? But th- there is obviously this like sort of like obsession part of it, which is like, this driving force to like mm-hmm. do things first and discover the big thing at all costs and that comes back to the ian malcolm quote where you know you create this thing and then all of a sudden oh wait a minute um mm." (laughs) but i I love you know (laughs) yeah i love the fact though going back to the personal ownership thing and how he's against that is that even at this point in the film and all throughout he's constantly been throwing out this thing of like this shouldn't this is a scientific discovery that is meant to be like used for the greater good of humanity. This is his entire thing that he says numerous times is we make this one bomb. So we never have to make another bomb ever again. Like he wants this to be a shining beacon of goodness in the world because of its fallout, because of the things that it leads to down the path. But as one character, I think it's um, Edward Teller played by Benny Safdie. He says, like, oh, yeah, we're going to make this bomb. Look at that. And then Teller says, until we make a bigger one. And that, I feel like, is that thing that ticked over in his head at that point. Because that was right as the two bombs were being sent away. Yeah. Where he was, he was like, oh, I have unleashed this. And it's never going to stop now. Yep. Just going to escalate. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean... <laughs> I, I guess from here, uh, th- there is probably, you know, we haven't really talked about some of the more direct personal relationships. Um, obviously, his love life is brought up a lot in the film. Um, hmm. He's a bit of a womanizer. He, he's, he cheats on his wife. Um, I will say, is, I might be incorrect here, but is this not the first, like, actual full sex scene that Nolan has done? You know, you may be right. I don't think he has had a had a sex scene. Yeah. Uh, this is it's definitely as explicit as this, and no, it's not even that. Not. It's not even that run. She's just, you know, it's, you know, this, she's topless, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a not. silky black dress. What are you talking about? <laughs> but it, it's this kind of idea of like, because well, well, actually, on the whole his political views thing, 
Mm-hmm. I looked up his Wikipedia page just to sort of like, you know, have a scam and see if, if anything stuck yeah. out to me. And one mm-hmm. thing I don't think the movie gets into too much, it doesn't contradict it, but it's the fact that until he was witnessing more things when he was at university or around that time, he was actually apolitical for, you know, uh, there's like a quote oh. about him not even knowing that the Wall Street crash happened until months later when he was talking to someone because he just never read papers or paid attention to stuff. Um, I I can relate hard in only that I wish I could stay off of Reddit. <laughs> so I, I think it's it's interesting to think that, you know, he became more like more aware of the world and the problems around him and was mm-hmm. sort of taking more of an interest and getting involved and then obviously was pulled out and had to like sort of leave it behind at a certain point. Um, yeah. But, you know, he, he's, he's falling for this woman who is part of the Communist Party, played by Florence Pugh. Mm-hmm. And they ultimately have a very rocky relationship. Uh, you know, it, Lord. It never seems very happy. But he no. ends up marrying the Emily Blunt character, Kitty Oppenheimer, as she ends up mm-hmm. being called after they're married. And there's a lot of stuff with with them with their marriage doesn't seem that like happy either she i mean she's clearly an alcoholic that's something that's made very clear yes. uh, mm-hmm. throughout the film in uh, fairness it seems like she's an alcoholic before that as well no like, it got true. worse yeah. but she was always drinking yeah and, and, probably another really standout scene actually is when they're questioning oppenheimer specifically about florence pugh's character and talking about mm-hmm. spending a night with her after he was already married to emily blunt's character uh, there's this great moment where the camera is like sort of like moving around the back of Jason Clark, and when mm-hmm. it comes on the other side of Jason Clark, he's then sitting there naked. And obviously, the symbolism here is that he's exposed; everything's yeah. laid out on the table. Um, but then, of course, it becomes Kitty's perspective, where she's effectively seeing Florence Pugh on top of him having sex, and she's looking right in her in the eyes, yeah. um, and. It, it, and I think it kind of transitioned to her perspective for a moment because she is the one who comes up with this, like, why are you letting them put us through this where you could just not, you could just yes. walk away from this. A thing that she says repeatedly at the end, first off, she's already figured out that it's Strauss that's caused all of this. Oh, yeah, she, she's, yeah. Like, everyone else is still convinced, like, she, oh, she's, no, Strauss is good to us. She's trusts that. Gonna let that sit for a minute. Like sussed, get it? Since she's sussed that. No, okay. Okay. So after that, um, they they repeatedly have her just writing Oppenheimer, saying like, "Why don't you just stand up for yourself? If you're gonna be there, if you're gonna be forced to do that, just fight back, do something." And finally, she's called in for questioning, and Oppenheimer is obviously there. Oh, he's, yeah, he's actually, that. now that you bring this up, this is a standout scene as well, where uh, she yeah. actually gets questioned, because she she goes scorched earth on these assholes. She it's doesn't hold back so a bit. so good. You sitting there, because this entire time, no one has stood up to Jason Clark. He is an actual prosecutor, and he is coming after all of these people in what's supposed to be just, like, a tiny little committee hearing. But he is an actual prosecutor, and Kitty's the only one who steps up and is like, oh, I'm sorry, could you rephrase the question? Because I think you may have meant this other thing. And just tears him down. It's so well done. Yeah. And it, it, it's all this play because Strauss is aware that this opposing view um, from from Oppenheimer is going to be in his way as a political advancement. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to get in the way of what he wants to do. Uh, and it specifically, we get some scenes of this like meeting they had at this sort of dinner table 
mm-hmm. where it's a bunch of the scientists that are high up in this uh you know the what was the name of the group uh the atomic the energy AEC? yeah something like that uh and they're basically debating like the development of the hydrogen bomb and if there's a spy that's leaked stuff to russia well, it, it starts off with robert downey jr coming in with evidence that russia dropped the bomb they they've gotten plutonium readings and whatnot and they're like they made a bomb they did yeah, yeah that's what i'm talking about they're talking about yeah. the, the fact that someone may elite something that's led mm-hmm. to them doing this which we fa- you know there is someone who's leaked stuff but um yeah. this debate kind of rolls on but the entire time oppenheimer's arguing against a hydrogen bomb he's arguing against the super and it's getting yes. in the way and i think part of the movie is kind of like pointing out that the like the development of the hydrogen bomb yeah there's other reasons why it happened as well it's not just this but the fact that one man was using it as like a political like advancing tool like it wasn't about something he yeah. necessarily believed in or necessarily felt strongly about i mean maybe he did too but it's more of like a this is a political chess piece mm-hmm. this is something he can do to win favor with the president or win favor with certain members of the public mm-hmm. um whatever it may be and well, it's, it's like that th- that obviously is also not why we should be making these decisions of weapons of mass bloody destructions is right. someone's political career well that's that's the part that i love the most when it gets to the reveals at the end of everything that strauss did in order to screw over oppenheimer is he he goes on this long tirade of like he the only reason that he stood against H bombs he could stood against the super is because he wanted to be the end all be all he he wanted to be Oppenheimer father of the bomb and no one else could come after that and he obviously did like it seems like the the big contention point that causes the one of those little bomb flash scenes in the uh, room with the security council is them basically poking and prodding and trying to figure out why were you okay with the atomic bomb but not the hydrogen bomb what is that line where where is your moral quandary that does applies to one but not the other and he has a really hard time explaining it he has a really hard time putting into words why he's trying to like because he's trying to be rational about it he's trying to explain like oh well uh this bomb there's no need for this because of this other thing but in reality it's an emotional response he feels guilty. He feels yeah. like he he shouldn't have done the atomic bomb to begin with. And that's where Strauss can understand that. He sees what Oppenheimer did as the crowning achievement of his career. Yeah. This I, thing I, that I, there's I have, no reason to feel guilty about. And I have heard someone say that this particular point you're making is why Strauss's perspective is in black and white, because he sees things in black and white without the nuance. That makes sense, yeah. And yeah, that does make sense. It makes sense that he he can't understand the intricacy of of the guilt he he sees it purely as a tool to be used he mm-hmm. sees it as oh a hydrogen bomb is good because then we have a bigger weapon than the enemy and that's you know that's that simple yeah. and i can sell that to the, the politicians i can sell that to the press i can sell it to everything and it's this thing where like they go into these these meetings and this hearing where he's mm-hmm. he's, he's being basically questioned and to order to get this role and they think it's a done deal the entire time and he's like okay i'm a little bit worried about certain questions but you know everyone always gets approved you know whoever the president picks always goes through in the end it's just that formality that's all it is and it's okay we've got scientists coming in to speak about you but we're pretty sure it's all good and one of the big key things that comes up is that okay the next scientist to come in and talk about me is someone from the chicago team of the manhattan project and he's like okay the ones that were at you know uh 
Los Alamos. Los Alamos, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones that were there, they basically, like, it was almost like a cult, right? Like, uh, at least that's how yeah. he thinks of it. He thinks of it as this is a cult, and they all were rooting for Oppenheimer, and they'll I all mean, speak that, badly against him. That gymnasium scene sure as hell made it seem that way. It did. And even though, it, but in reality, it wasn't all of them, really. You know, you see, nah. like, a couple of them crying afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, like, that, and that was the woman who was, like, leading the protest against using the bomb a few oh, scenes yeah. earlier so that mm-hmm. seems like it was probably accurate and that's who was really crying but anyway so he thinks everyone there loved oppenheimer and will speak out against him so he's like feeling so confident that it's someone from the chicago branch mm-hmm. and then we finally see who it is and his second scene and his second of two yep. scenes is rami malek fantastic mm-hmm. on mr robot might i add he is him but he was the one who was trying to get oppenheimer to take the petition from the scientists to like not yeah. drop the bomb so would you believe it? He sits down and tears into to Strauss and yep. tears into him at, with, without hesitation and uh, makes it very clear how against Oppenheimer Strauss is. Mm-hmm. And and it's, it's made the point that like, that's the reason that he's making this point. He's saying the entire scientific community, speaking on behalf of them, don't want Strauss in power specifically because of the way he treated Oppenheimer. Not that they liked Oppenheimer. Like, they could have, like... Obviously, there was nothing in the movie to say whether or not Rami Malek specifically liked him as a person. But it was just the treatment of him that they completely were against in terms of Strauss. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's... Because Downey Jr.'s character, Strauss, he multiple times make it clear that he's not actually that much of a physicist, right? Mm -hmm. And the big thing that he's butthurt about is that he made some comments to the press about uh, the bombs or about fission, and Oppenheimer, of course, in public, completely makes fun of all of them, right? And I think it, I think it was a policy thing. I think yeah. that Downey Jr. went in front of a board and said, "We want to ship this isotope stuff because it can, or stop shipping isotope stuff because it can be used for nuclear weapons." And then Oppenheimer stepped up and said, "Like, no, it can't. That guy's an idiot." <laughs> it's like, you can, yeah, I mean, you can use that the same way you can use a sandwich to make yep. a nuclear weapon. And everyone um, laughs, and Robert Downey Jr. just sits there writing in his notebook. Just skulking, yes. Yeah. Plotting his revenge. Mm-hmm. And so so this is all this petty thing. And it's, it's ironic that he can't understand that someone else feels guilty, and it's not about like hogging the glory, mm-hmm. when his entire motivation is also an emotional response, but it's just a very petty one. <laughs> yeah. It's a very, you know, short-sighted and just, like, interpersonal guilt or pet not guilt sorry uh selfish responses and that's what i love is that he's telling these stories he's saying you know all the stuff that happened to a couple of aides that are assisting him through this cabinet process and one of the aides you know has the moral high ground he's calling him out for being a dick and he the aides, you know he says like yeah no you should have the votes whatever but in the end turns out that remy malek's testimony was just enough to flip a few senators, including a little name drop of JFK for some reason. <laughs> yeah, for a second I thought he was going to say, I'm going to go after these pricks who uh, voted against me. And then, then they yeah. mentioned JFK's one. I was like, oh, well, no, he he, he did all right, career-wise. Yeah, he was all right. I mean, it had um, a bad ending, but he he, he, yeah. he rose just about as high as you can in the political that was, spectrum. That was a separate thing over there. Um, but then the aide who has a moral high ground, when... Robert Downey Jr. is recounting, like, he's the one who turned all of them against me. Just look at what he did to Einstein. Einstein wouldn't even look me in the eye. And the aide says, you know what? You might be right. He may have said something to Einstein. But there's also a chance that he would, those two great minds were talking about something way more important than you. 
And I feel like that was the perfect, because that's the end of his plot. He goes out, he faces the press and says, yeah, we lost the cabinet thing. And it's but, right after that that it goes to that scene with Einstein uh, to, right. to you know, find out what they actually did say to each other. Yep, but I just love that little moment where more important than you, because you can tell throughout this entire movie, Strauss could not imagine anything more important than their careers, their political st- stature, the way that people see them. That's the only thing that matters yeah, in Strauss's th- eyes. I think that's the... If, if the movie is, like, definitively saying anything, because I think a lot of it is open to your own, like, like who you should sympathize with. It's saying a lot about, like... There's, you know, there's a lot of circumstances beyond just one guy wanting to make an atom bomb, right? It's more complex mm-hmm. than that. But I think, if anything else, it's saying that scientists, like, even if they make something horrifically devastating like an atom bomb... The eye-opening experience of that, most people involved seem to have like a solid understanding of what they've just done, and mm-hmm. there's a grasp of it. And then someone like Strauss, who ironically, by the end of the story, is kind of like hated by the scientific community, and it's not because you know someone's turned them against them; it's because he's mm-hmm. repeatedly shown a disregard for the things they have learned and discovered, and their warnings. And it's hard not to think about, you know, scientists in present day talking about climate change and hearing yeah. people say, oh, this is Philly, there's snow outside, like, everything's mm-hmm. fine. Like, let's listen I mean, to the scientists I occasionally. Just, I, don't know. Just, I mean, not to get too political, but like, just this week, as we are recording this, as this movie came out, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, waters in the Florida ocean have hit over 100 degrees. Like, the water itself is over 100 degrees Fahrenheit which in Celsius, I think it's like 30-something. Yeah, I was going to say if it was Celsius, it'd be steam, but yeah, go on. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> it's like, that is something that is a major problem, a sign of things to come, this horrible vision of the future, but no one's listening. No one cares. No one's, no one's giving about it, because as Oppenheimer says uh, to the people, as they are talking about, do we stop this bomb? Do we just stop working on it so that they can't drop it on Japan? He says, we are people of theory. We can see down the road and we can see the horrible thing that lies ahead. They are people of action. They're not going to understand it until they have it in front of them. And, and that, I think that applies for everything. And that's a recurring line that comes up in this movie is that theory will only get you so far. And mm-hmm. eventually you have to do it, you know, actually enact it. And... Mm-hmm clearly there's some things that you would like to just be theory and never actually exist you would like climate change to just be theory that we somehow stop from happening further than it is that seems that the ship has sailed largely on i would like i would like a social media site without an algorithm but (laughs) that's just theory yeah yeah so it's 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 this like belief once a system's in place that nothing can challenge it and it has to remain because there's a certain group of people at the top who it benefits to keep. And, you know, this all comes back to uh, the Truman scene where after the war, Oppenheimer goes to see President Truman, played by Gary yep. Oldman, and mm-hmm. he tries to, like, raise his concerns about, you know, this turning into an arms race and how we shouldn't keep trying to go bigger. Mm-hmm. And Truman's like, do you think the people in Japan care that you built the bomb? They No, they care about who dropped it. I'm the one who gave the order to drop it. This is not about you. And this obviously doesn't alleviate Oppenheimer from his guilt. Like, why would no, it? Not at all. Like, Although, the- that, is, that is the turning point, though, where despite him feeling guilty, he owns up to the name of Father of the Bomb rather than trying to escape it so that he can use that clout 
to influence policy yeah, yeah, that, to that, make decisions. That's something that's brought up after the fact, is that he effectively uses his fame to try and help inflate. He basically tries to use what fame he has now to do something good with it and say, mm-hmm. okay, we have to be aware of this. We, you know, And, you know, as far as I quickly read on Wikipedia, he did advocate against more bigger bombs. He did try to stop oh, that yeah. from happening. Obviously, it still did. Um, but, you know, it, you know that's, the, that's the thing about the movie is that you're dealing with a character here who it would be a mistake to be purely sympathetic and try and paint him as this good person who, like, I think it's trying to paint a, a complex character who mm. has things we can understand, has goals and, like, desires we can understand, does things that are kind of unforgivable, but at the very least afterwards tries to do something else with them. And you, I think it's up to everyone to decide, like, is that enough? Like, but if it isn't enough, then what do you have them do after I that? Mean, to pull back from another Nolan film, Batman Begins. It's mm. not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. And underneath, he, like he was saying, he was trying to become, yeah, no, I'm the father of the bomb. I'm, I'm the guy who did this. That's what he could have been known for as just a blanket statement. But it's his actions. It's the things that he did afterwards with that fame that defines him as a person and whether or not we are to sympathize with him based off of that. Yeah, um, and it's it's like I say, he's a complex character that I don't think the movie tries to paint as a villain or a hero. Um, no. And I think try, to, I think it would be very easy to just paint him as a villain and just leave it at that. I, I mean, a hero is just basically impossible. You have to have some <laughs> negative elements to him. Yeah, but you could just paint him as a villain and say he's awful for what he did. But I mm-hmm. think the movie's more nuanced at looking at like, okay. Here's all the things surrounding him. Here are all the people around him. Here's why he made these decisions and why he felt he had to, like, you know, alienate himself from certain people. Here's why he felt pressured by certain, you know, government bodies, things like that. Um, And yeah, you can still criticize and say, no, he should have held out. He should have held out and not been the one. And then we could criticize the one who eventually gave in and did build the bomb right mm. um but of course like that may not have been on the american side that could have been somewhere else you know yeah. like, it could be someone else with with nukes after that fact mm-hmm. um who's to say you know that's you know alternate history stuff at that point but yep um i i think when i was getting into this i was wondering how it was going to tackle the character and was it going to tackle him in a way where are we going to like treat this as uh what can i compare it to like uh you know, like a, like a drama of like a, a a historical figure who's not a nice person. It's more about getting into their heads if they're, you know, like a violent person or something like that. Is, yeah. it, is it going to do that and be more of the fly on the wall? Um, I feel like this movie is actually going one step further, though, and actually trying to challenge your preconceived notions of like, you know, like you said earlier, even after what he did, is it possible that he is a better person as a result of like having to live with what he did and mm-hmm. maybe try and do some good with it after the fact yeah um you know because it seems like einstein's changed by all the things he did and discovered and and talked oh, yeah. about you know For and sure. he brought up how nobel was kind of similar and that he you know he did the dynamite but then he tried to do other things afterwards he tried to so it, it, it is almost like to, to go back to the silly jurassic park quote is that mm-hmm. it is almost like oh shit we've made a t-rex and it's eaten someone maybe i have to own up to the fact that we shouldn't have done that and try and put the genie back in the bottle even though yeah. you can never really put the genie back in the bottle once these things are you know out there so it, it's 
I, I think that is... It's, it's almost like... Because, you know, chemistry, right? You know, obviously, we're talking a lot about physics here, but chemistry yeah. ultimately is what a, an explosion is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is chemistry, to, to quote uh, Walter White from Breaking Bad, it's the art go. of transformation, right? It's, uh, you know, two things becoming one or one thing's becoming two in the case of fission. Yep. That idea of, like, looking at the people is purely just like a, okay, let's look at this almost as if we're scientists. And it's not that we won't feel anything because the, the thunderous weight of what all this means and the effect that it has on the world is very important. But mm-hmm. we treat the people like they are just part of the the particles, they're part of the atoms, they're, they're part of yeah. the makeup of what's making everything tick. And if the world itself is the atom, then the people that live on the planet are indeed all of the, the tiny quantum bits that make up the atom yeah. and mm-hmm. that's kind of what it's doing it's, it's doing that and you know like maybe, maybe that's all a bit artsy fartsy to describe it that way but I, I think the movie is actually yeah. kind of going for in the way we've talked about throughout how yeah. it very much is the people falling apart in the fission part and then sort of exploding and colliding together in the fusion part you know basically all, basically all the cre- this movie the creation of the atom bomb if the if we go with that whole metaphor of the world is an atom the creation of the atom bomb is them launching a nucleus at it, them throwing that single nucleus, hoping to split the atom. Mm. And they, it doesn't work the first time, so they make another, and they make another, until eventually we're launching tons and tons of neutrons at this thing, until eventually something's got to give. Something's going to eventually just end it all. Unless we just stop firing neutrons at it. <laughs> yeah. Actually, on a... So... Just, just to go away from the bigger themes for a minute, uh, mm-hmm. I, I do think it's worth pointing out that obviously we've talked about some of the, the bigger set-piece direction scenes, you know, the, the gymnasium scene, the bomb itself, yep. uh, things like the hearing with the, the nudity, all great stuff. But there's also little things to make the movie easier to follow. And it's something as simple as, while we're developing this stuff, and we're literally having to wait for them to mine enough raw material to make yes. these bombs... So they have this visual simple thing where they've got like uh, the two jars or one's like a, a wine glass or whatever it is and the mm. other is like a big sort of like fishbowl. It's okay, this one represents how much, you know, plutonium we need for this one. This one represents how much, uh, was it uranium for the other one? Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, and it's like, this is how much we have relative to what we need and he drops in like a few marbles and it's like, oh shit, that's going to take a while. And mm. over the course of the film as we're cutting around and doing all these other things, every so often as that part's going fairly linear, we just every so often see some more marbles dropped in until eventually it's, you know, almost to the brim. And it's yep. just this constant visual signifier to tell us how close we are to detonation. We're just building the, to it. For the second time, I'm going to bring up Monuments, man. Well, one of our major complaints we made in that movie was we had no sense of time. And at a certain point towards the end of the film, they said that a year had passed. And me and you were both like, what? No, yes, there's yeah. no possible way. This movie, they explicitly say, um, for the part, you know, chronologically from them starting Los Alamos to dropping the bomb, the test bomb, was two years and some change. And because of that marble scene, because of that, like, running motif that just constantly is just seen in the background or occasionally brought up, it gave you such a good sense of the passing of time. You really understood, like, okay, despite the fact they're still just sitting in this room, running through the equations and figuring out how to do this, 
you can tell that progress is being made because you can see the time passing. I can't emphasize just how important this little trick is to just making mm-hmm. the sequencing of it feel really easy to follow, but also just like you say, give us that passage of time. It's such a experienced filmmaker trick. And that's effectively what it is. It's just a simple trick. Like, I I would heavily doubt, like, maybe you'll tell me it was true, someone, if you know it, but I suspect this wasn't a real thing that they had yeah. in that room. I think this was purely a filmmaking device that was thought up to just make it easy for the audience to follow. Um, and David is Googling to see yep. if he can find out if they really had a fishbowl with marbles in it. <laughs> So I typed in Marble Jar Los Alamos, and I'm not getting a lot except for Etsy shops. Yeah, yeah. Etsy shops are selling... uh... (laughs) They're selling marble jars. Jars to keep your marbles in. But Los Alamos, like, themed ones? I don't know. I guess. I think it's mainly saying people who live near Ah. Los Alamos, New Mexico can get it from these places. Anyway. But yeah, yeah, no, I, I... in in regards to little scenes like that, little tiny things that I just absolutely adored. Um, the other thing is there is this running motif that's used every once in a while of water and specifically raindrops and ripples oh, yeah, hitting them. Yeah. And it all comes to a head at the end of the movie when it's perfectly mirrored onto the image of the earth and just these circles of fire spreading out as the bombs yeah. drop. And it's this idea that it's been seeded pretty much since the very beginning. Yeah, my of... favorite one is when they're looking at the map at that meeting where uh, mm. Strauss is saying we need to build a hydrogen bomb, and they're they're putting they're pointing on the map and saying this is how big the radius would be if it hit here, here, here. Yep. And Oppenheimer looks down at the map, and it's like it's under just a shallow layer of water, and there's like just ripples where the bombs are hitting. Yeah. Uh, really well done uh, stuff. It's, it's yeah. just visual motifs it's one of these things where you you could like there is a version of this movie by someone else that is a dry film oh right that is just this dry movie and right from the get-go this film has us cut into these shots of particles and it's just this sort of hypnotic experience of like you you feel like you're watching the next stage of the universe forming right (laughs) that's that's what it feels like when you're watching it Going back to the beginning of the movie when the entire focus on them, them like talking about stars and talking about how like, oh, yeah, like black holes in theory could exist and they get published. They publish a paper saying how black holes could exist. They do those little cutaways, but instead of the inners of like particles, and whatnot, it's space. They go yeah. out and this just so star fields and it has this huge like feeling to it like you again because of the way that nolan shot all of this film in imax it has this just huge feeling to it of the enormity of space but then when it's showing those smaller objects as well when it's showing those tiny particles and like the uh waves of the orbits or whatever they feel just as huge they feel yeah. just as massive despite the fact that they're these tiny tiny little things it, in actuality. it's definitely drawing the visual comparison that on a particle level Mm-hmm. That frontier is just as big as space. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's definitely, you know, it's, it's almost that end in a Men in Black thing where inside, like, everything, there's another universe. And then inside that, there's another universe. Right. You know, yeah. And so on and so on. Uh, maybe not literally, but that's definitely what it conjures up in your mind because these visuals do look a lot like space. They feel just as grand mm-hmm. as anything like that. And then you think of, like, his own films. You think of Interstellar, you know, that had black holes in it. You know, yeah. like, that was a topic in there. 
And I think in Tenet, there was a conversation about Oppenheimer at one point? They offhandedly mention it, yes. Yeah. But apparently, that was just coincidence, because what I saw actually inspired the film, quote-unquote, was that at the rap party for Tenet, Robert Pattinson gave a book of Oppenheimer's speeches to Christopher Nolan as a gift. Oh. And that's what he read through that, and he was like, this guy's pretty cool. <laughs> I got a uh, got to make a movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's interesting. I, yeah, okay, okay, okay. Actually, yeah. so back to that scene earlier, you talked about how um, they read in the paper that uh, the atom has been mm-hmm. split, and Oppenheimer's like, "Oh, this isn't possible. This isn't possible." He's done the math that it's not possible, and Josh Hartnett walks in and goes, "Yeah, I see the math isn't added up, and I agree with that." But there's just one problem with that, uh, Robert. He's like, what's that? We did it next door. <laughs> like, yeah. we've recreated what they did next door. While well, you were doing that, yeah, we've actually just done it. Yeah. And that obviously introduces this idea of, like, the theory only gets you so far. And there's mm-hmm. literally, they just, yeah, let's just fire some, you know, neutrons at something and see what happens. Yep. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's funny. You know, you brought up Chernobyl earlier, and it is kind of interesting. Obviously, they're very different. Oh, um yeah. But I, I think it's interesting that both of this and Chernobyl, which are both nuclear, very different though, because one's about a nuclear power plant, one's about nuclear bombs. But mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that in both of them, there's an element of the system and the people making decisions not treating the subject with the reverence and the, oh, yeah. the caution that it should be. And mm-hmm. I think that's a running thing throughout history is people in power just not giving a shit. And just like, what, what can we use it for? Well, that's what I was saying about there are men of theory, there are men who can look down the road and see the problems that will come, and then there's men of action who need to literally be having that in their hand. It needs to be right up against them for them to understand what's going on. And that's, it seems as though most government policymakers are men of action because that's who you want in an emergency, but Uh not quite who you want for the long term. I do want to point out, if you started this review just as the movie started and we didn't edit anything out, the bomb just dropped. <laughs> yeah. Although on that point, I would I would argue, I see the point you're making. I would probably argue, though, that it's less about being men of action and more about political motivations and oh, ignorance yeah. and lots of other things than just... I think, I think that men of action is a nicer way of saying short-sighted. Mm. I think that's a nicely politicized term there yeah again much like all the characters around surrounding the scientists and oppenheimer in this movie there's a lot more to it than just like simple mm-hmm. you know general statements but uh certainly yeah you, you can the ability to be able to predict things because you've got evidence to back it up is mm-hmm. something that should be adhered to more than it is but yeah. hey it is what it is uh you know um I mean, honestly, we've been jumping around so much. I have no idea. We never mentioned the Casey Affleck scene. That that was like a horror movie scene. Yeah, he's a um, a colonel, I think it was. Yeah, so basically, he Oppenheimer goes back to wherever, and he wants to go talk to his friend who's been locked up. Mm, who's uh, a communist. Like who's a super communist. communist. Yeah. And there was a scene where one of his communist like, friends said hey you know you're doing something super important and i just wanted you to know that there's someone that i know who 
if any information came out from this project, it could probably make its way to the Soviets. And Oppenheimer just kind of like acts awkward about it and doesn't say anything and leaves it at that. But when I, he, I just love that phrasing because acts awkward, doesn't say anything, and just moves on. Describes like ninety five percent of what Oppenheimer does in this movie. So Oppenheimer goes to visit not this guy, someone else, like another mm-hmm. uh, communist friend, and he wants to go in and talk to him. He's been advised that it doesn't look good if he's going to visit him, but he's going to take the chance. And as he's going in, partly to kind of make himself look like he's no, you know, he's he's playing ball with with the government. Yeah. He's not he's not nothing to hide. He 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 just sort of mentions in passing, oh you know you know you know maybe heard from so- someone you know that yeah. someone was looking for information or something. Yeah, you know, I just there's there's this one guy. Uh, keep an eye on him. And the other guy's like, I'm sorry, what? Did you just did you just offer us a measure? Um, you want to have a chat? You want to yeah. sit down? You want to talk? And of course, him? he comes back for this meeting that this this military dude insists upon. And when he comes in, he's not alone. Casey Affleck's sitting there. And mm-hmm. he's asking these questions. He's getting, you know, very specific answers he wants. He's asking all these questions about his friends. Yep. And eventually he does give up a name. He gives up the name of the friend that said, the, you know, we can maybe get this information to someone if you give it to me. Well, this entire scene is intercut with the train ride immediately afterwards where he's talking yeah. to Matt Damon's character and saying like, hey, by the way, I talked to this colonel guy. And Matt Damon's like, you did what? <laughs> this guy Him? waterboards people and wants to murder them. <laughs> he he literally went to Russia to fight the communists. He killed communists with his bare hands, dude. <laughs> and it turns out later that Matt Damon actually like got this guy, sh- you know, uh, transferred to some, another mm-hmm. country just to keep him away from Oppenheimer, so he wouldn't cause any problems. Like he actually yep. stepped in and used his power, and that comes up during all the hearings when Matt Damon's in, uh, given his side of events, which. Yeah all leads to them asking him like you approved oppenheimer you kept an eye on him and you said yeah he should have clearance mm-hmm. and you know given the current guidelines that we have today would you still approve him and you know he looks down and it's it, it actually like there's a cut to a different scene and we come back to this afterwards yeah. but he eventually says no under these current guidelines I, I i don't think i could under these current guidelines which were not in effect when i was yes originally approving him no i would not and also, I would not approve anybody that was on the Manhattan Project if these were the guidelines. Yeah, yeah. So he's making the case that, you know, if I was given these guidelines, no, I couldn't. But, mm-hmm. you know, like... It's probably because, like, guideline two was, was never a communist. <laughs> Has never spoken to a communist person. Has yeah. never sworn in their life. Has always helped old ladies cross the street. Don't know how you Enjoys that, paying but... taxes. <laughs> yeah so no but it, that that scene is very tense because casey affleck's being very like i wouldn't say friendly but he, he's not necessarily phrasing things in an intimidating way but there's this I'm, intimidating tone to every single thing he says i'm blanking on his name like the character's name but christoph waltz in inglorious bastards that first scene oh yeah yeah i love him yeah it's it's that like it's that sort of setup before the shoe drops yeah, and Oppenheimer is very nervous the entire time. He feels like he's being interrogated, even though mm-hmm. he, he kind of put himself in this position by saying well, something. And that was this whole thing is that he was just like, look, there's this guy there. I just told them keep an eye on him. But like these guys are pressing for specifically who he heard this information from. And that guy's a friend. So Oppenheimer's trying to just like not give that away. But they are pushing hard. 
All right, is there anything else we want to talk about? Um, <laughs> this is a three-hour movie, and there's so much... It's so dense. It's... Going back to what we said, it's so dense. Yeah, I, I remember, like, 40 minutes out of the movie, I was sort of thinking, like, oh, my God, how am I, how are we going to talk about this? It's jumping around there's so no much. Way. Uh, the only other thing that I think is worth mentioning is that consistently throughout the movie, Oppenheimer is pushing for his brother to join him uh, yeah, at Los Alamos, and his brother was actually a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, so... That was a no-go right up until the very end when they basically had the bomb already built. And he brought his brother on to essentially build the test site where Trinity was going to happen. He mapped it all out and got that all built up. So just a just an interesting thing where he he knows, obviously, that his brother is okay. At least he believes his brother is not going to inform the Soviets or whatnot. But he's just so unwilling to play ball in that one aspect of, like, even if, you know, you're going to shut down all this stuff because I knew communists back in the day. Like, I still want my brother here. Like, just let me invite him along. Come on. What's the big deal? Well, I mean, I, th- I think the more important thing to take from that is that that's still one part of his humanity that he's not willing to give up. Is that mm-hmm. He never, like, sells out his brother. He never goes that far. There's a point very early on where his brother gets engaged to a woman that Oppenheimer clearly does not approve of for Mm. whatever reason, but he's still happy for his brother. He's still like, look, no matter what you choose, if you're happy, I'm happy. So it's it's that one last little link that he never does actually sever. Yeah, and it it again shows that he can coexist much like he can coexist with full full on communists, which he, you know, it never may or may not have become, depending Mm. on how the life may have turned out. But clearly, it's this idea that, um, as far as the U.S. government's concerned, particularly when it comes to communism in this time period, mm-hmm. there is a zero tolerance, you know, policy. It is, it yeah. is simple. It's black and white. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. And the whole idea of him like supporting his brother, even when he doesn't necessarily agree with his choice of wife, is like no, like it doesn't. Like you can let yeah. that lie. It doesn't matter. He's a commie, dude. What are you doing? <laughs> so uh, yeah like the the movie is so dense with its ideas it's so dense and its depiction of a very complex character and it's trying to treat the story with this reverence that yes this man fundamentally changed the world but it poses a lot of questions it poses like what someone would feel if they're put in that position and he did have the drive to do it but Mm -hmm. like you say someone else would have done it if it wasn't him probably um you know maybe not on the u.s side but certainly somewhere and And it it is important that like he was not the guy who solved the equations he was not the guy who like actually loaded up the bomb he was just the guy running everything he was the guy who managed the project and allowed these scientists to reach this point but you've got like all those elements you've got the elements of how other people are trying to use it either as a weapon or as a political you know pawn in their game you've Mm -hmm. got all of these things at play and fundamentally is this examination of people right i mean like we talk about the bomb constantly because it's all revolving around that and the the the, the change that's going to bring to the world and obviously that's a big theme and a big talking point of the film but it all kind of comes back down to the people and Mm -hmm. how they treat these advancements what they do with them and the culpability of the people involved in making them, even if they weren't the ones making the decision to make them. I think for a story about a character who inherently people might have opinions going in on, 
Um, maybe not as strong today as they probably were, say, in the 50s and 60s when it was all still, you know, much right. fresher and everyone who lived through its minds. But, you know, it, it's definitely not something you can go into with a clear cut. Here's the true story that will make you like Oppenheimer because that was never right. going to work and it was never going to be the case. Instead, it's like, no, this is more complex than that. And I think the fact that, like, obviously the communist ties were real anyway, but I mm-hmm. think the idea of relating it to that where as far as the official, you know, party line was in the US for such a long time, and, and indeed most of the Western world, is mm-hmm. no, communist equals bad. There is no ifs and or buts, that is just bad, and there's no shades of grey. And yeah. this movie's saying, no, it's actually got more nuance than that. Some of these yeah. people seem like reasonable people who just wanted unionization. And that, like, you know, there's levels to it, there's more to it, and ultimately, that's the intricacies, and that's the, that's the particles as opposed mm-hmm. to the big bomb the big boom as it were the boom is yep. just the, the the culmination of all so i guess you could say it was kind of like a middling movie overall though. <laughs> I, I guess when you rate the movie that yeah was, uh... i mean if we if we have to i mean do i beat around the bush do i say like oh well i've rated so many other things and i i don't want to reveal my ratings for later nolan films so i will keep my mouth shut on that but i will say this this one's going to be the highest. I'm going to give this one a 9.5. And I put that with the mild asterisk that I said at the very beginning of this is that I want to spend more time with it. I want to be able to sit down, watch this again, pick up on smaller things, really knowing where we end up. I want to see stuff at the beginning and see how well that process is through. But on this first viewing, having sat with it for a full day now, explaining out all these themes that it has, I'm going to give it a 9.5. I think what's interesting to me is that I liked the movie a lot. There was lots of standout scenes I really liked. But it's definitely, from a subject point of view, not necessarily the first thing that appeals to me about Nolan in general. You know, when I mm-hmm. think of Nolan in general, I think of his sci-fi movies, I think of, right. uh, you know, even Memento, which is not science fiction, but the memory loss leads to this sort of gimmick in its structure, which is, you know, very unique. It's very different. Well, this is obviously still playing with the structure and stuff. It being about a historical figure inherently puts it in a very different frame of mind as to basically everything else he's made except maybe Dunkirk, which is obviously based on a, a real event as well. Yeah. And as I was watching it, I got this feeling that much like a lot of Nolan films, I'm probably going to get more out of it the second time I see it. Mm-hmm. Like that was a just a thought I had as I was watching it, which is not to say I'm prefacing all this to give it less than great rating because i'm not um because it is excellently done the the mm-hmm. scenes where all the, the the ideas come together are phenomenal um but it is definitely more of this grand opus than a lot of the other films which are a story with a beginning middle and end even if he sometimes plays around with where those parts go because he does mm-hmm. but having said all that some of his best scenes that he's ever directed are in this and yeah. It is a movie that will get you thinking about life, about all these themes that we've talked about and the culpability of things and the magnitude of, of what these people did and how it changed the world and possibly use it as a warning for other things coming. You know, we've mentioned climate change, but it's also possible at some point someone will develop an even bigger bomb. It's not out of the question yeah. that it'll happen. I mean, we're still in the let's have fun phase of AI, but Lord only knows where that's going to end up. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, that, that brings, you know, 
atomic bombs and AI. That's Terminator. You put those together, you you got Terminator. We did it. All that said, um, I think having talked about it, I'm probably comfortable going as high as the nine. Uh, I, I think when I came out of it, I was like, oh, I, don't, I need to think about this. And, I, you know, I was thinking about it and I was, yeah. you know, and I, I was maybe thinking more of an 8.5. But I think talking about it, I think thinking about it more over the last day and a half mm-hmm. has, has, has put it up to the nine. And I suspect that I'll get even more out of it on repeat viewings where... When I know where it's going, I can pick up some of the thematic things earlier on better. I can see the seeds for later moments mm. a bit better. You'll notice that Remy Malek is actually in every scene of this movie, just <laughs> lurking in the background. There's so many good actors in this that are only in like a scene or two. It's mm. it's, it's it's shocking, but um, my noticeably no Michael Caine. That that was noticeable. No yeah. Michael Caine. Um, maybe there just wasn't a role for a such a british dude <laughs> i mean just have him over the radio like they didn't dunkirk just make that uh, his thing any anytime he does a historical film michael kane's on the radio i mean this is the sixth film that kelly and murphy's done with nolan but this is the first sure. time he's been the leading man so and i do want to point out like between obviously peaky blinders was a big thing for him for a very long time and this i wouldn't be surprised to see several movies with Killian murphy being the lead coming out after this i think this is something that he is very very much earning that spot i'm not sure if it's like quite up there on oscar worthy we'll see what competition comes out over the rest of the year if any considering the strikes going on but well i I mean the the rest of the year is already done like yeah true fair movies take a bit of time to make (laughs) the actors i guess i guess i'm more so saying will people show up to the oscars if there's a strike oh no 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 that's a very fair thing the actors can't go to the oscars if there's a strike that's just it's that simple so we'll see what comes with that but i do think that this may be a little renaissance for killian murphy having shown his chops here actually the next thing we need to do is i think a very obvious question of does this make the cut well yeah it makes the cut yeah but where does it make the cut? I don't know. What do you think? I think a cut above. I mean, I I think that this is one of those movies that it may, it may just be because of the times. Like if we reach a point in society where people actually listen to scientists, it may lose some of its punch, but mm. I don't foresee that being a thing. So I think this is going to be one of those timeless films where the themes that it talks about and the things that it covers is always going to be something that everyone can relate to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to give it the cut above. I'm, I'm just... I'm just... Uh, ruminating in my head. But, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go... <laughs> I'm happy to give it the cut above. I, you know, it, it, it's big weighty subjects. It handles them pretty deftly. Mm. It's well directed. I, I, yeah. I really can't fault it too much, uh, really. The, the only minor critique I could maybe give it is that the assistant guy with Robert Downey Jr. maybe is used to spell things out a little bit towards the end. Mm, that's it, fair. It gets a bit movie. Yeah, no, I could see that. If I had to give my minor critique on this, it would be that it feels like the whole movie is building up to the bomb. So that entire last hour, you're kind of feeling like, are we about to end or should I like stay... In the, is this the wrap-up scene, or are we still going for a while sort of thing? It's only when you know the running time that you understand, like, no, you need to stay invested for another hour afterwards. Yeah, but 
I think that works completely in this case, though, because mm-hmm. it, the aftermath, like, is so important to to that bomb being dropped that you have to do something with it. It can't just be an epilogue scene. It has to be, yeah, you know, and that's why sprinkling in all those, uh, you know, Strauss uh, perspective moments and the hearing moments with uh, with Oppenheimer. That's why mm-hmm. they feel so right to have there because. Yeah, the aftermath of this is a big deal. Even though those hearings are really focused on the people and conspiracies and, you know, devaluing someone else's opinion and voice in the community, mm-hmm. um, it, it's still very much about the aftermath of what happened after the bomb went off. And this is one of the things that it caused. Uh, yeah. But, you know, uh, Oppenheimer was warned that they, he would be disregarded uh, as soon as they're done with him. As soon as the, his purpose is, is done, yep. they'll put him to the side and not give a shit about him. And uh, yeah, he, he and he fought that as best he could, but ultimately, yeah, they did come for him to shut him down. Mm-hmm. So, anywho, uh, that is that is uh, Oppenheimer. Um, so, changing gears a little bit next week. So, <laughs> uh, so because of the timing of when a new movie's coming out, uh, Nolan's season's taking a two week break. And in those two weeks, we'll have the animated 2007 TMNT. And then the new release of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. And then the back half of Nolan's season will continue after that. So, bit of a weird interlude after Oppenheimer. But maybe you're in the mood for something light now, given that we've just had this big oppressive, we've ruined the world movie. There are people who went from Oppenheimer to Barbie in less than like three hours time. I think these people can handle a one week transition over to TMNT. To be fair, I did hear from most people that you should see Barbie first. I would hope so. I can't imagine you sitting there in that bright and colorful world with the end of humanity weighing on your mind. I mean, as after all, Barbenheimer. You start with Barbie, you end with Heimer. True, true. true. So. I'm just saying, certain people had the showtimes not line up right. They might have seen it in the reverse <laughs> order. Very true, but... Um, yeah, so yeah. Turtles for a couple of weeks, then back to Nolan. Um, mm. And some... Yeah, so what do we have left still? We have Prestige, we have Dunkirk, and we have... Insomnia. Insomnia, yeah. we got those three left in the mm-hmm. season, so look forward to those. And of course, you can let us know what you thought of Oppenheimer in the comments. All the usual stuff applies. You can support the show by going over to patreon.com slash TV, and you get a few bonus things. Uh, you get bonus things for all the shows that are on Mailfuzz movies, but for Collector's Cut specifically, everyone on Patreon gets access to the bonus episode every month, which this month was Monuments Men. Mm-hmm. so uh, you can go check out that then five dollars and up tier also get access to extra reels which is the show where we watch a movie that's so bad it's hopefully good although uh this month uh we had our first neil breen movie so um <laughs> i like how you just qualified it with the word first can't be the only we have to come back well we've already got one scheduled for about five months from now but yeah oh good oh boy and that, much like this film that was an odyssey much like this film it took place in no oh, wait no that's nevada i was gonna say new mexico but it was well, vegas never mind yeah. the desert it took place in a desert yeah, yeah. <laughs> although in that case it was more for budget reasons than <laughs> uh because it you know was being signed or factually accurate but mm-hmm. um so yes there you go that is uh that is the show that is our thoughts on oppenheimer and honestly i'm not sure that was a coherent conversation but you can weigh in in the comments with your thoughts and feelings on the subject Mm -hmm. uh 
But there you go. So thank you very much for watching. We always appreciate it. Keep watching movies. And I have become death destroyer of Barbie.